Uh, awesome, awesome. Um, so yeah, th this is completely free reign in terms of language, anything that can be discussed. Um, it's uh, titled as Raw and Authentic Conversations for a reason. Um, and subsequently, I suffer quite a lot of uh, censorship and restrictions, uh, but I'd rather have more interesting, more uh, to the point conversations than just, you know, a circle jerk every week. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to... Uh, yeah, really delving into this because as I say, I've I've followed your work for quite a while. I very much enjoy it. Is it Don Chad? You've you've titled it. Got it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, it it just there was a there's a there's a California guy, Brett Pella, I think. Yeah, I've is. met him. Yeah, yeah, I know him. Yeah, and it's it was it was from something I saw of his a good few years ago, and it kind of went down this rabbit hole of kind of like uh i suppose not mainstream comedy influences in, in california and that's when i kind of stumbled across you from a recommendation of i think his video of him and i think his partner doing like a in a music festival and it was like gangster shot in crystals like there were drugs yeah and yeah <laughs> you just, know the one i know yeah. that bit <laughs> and as soon as i jumped into yours i was like oh wait this is fucking awesome and because obviously the the space that I work in, I've, I've been uh, sort of frontline of uh, drugs activism and predominantly cannabis for, for about 10 years here in the UK. And I've seen it. I've seen the money. I come from the North. The North-South divide in this country is huge. So, yeah, I'm constantly wetting myself watching uh, watching your videos, brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's just jump straight into this then. Uh, actually, I think I'll probably that bit of the snippet is probably going to go with us. So without further ado, let's jump straight into this and I'll do my cold opener as it were, which is, if I remember. <laughs> Yo, how are you doing, folks? Welcome to episode 137, I'm guessing. 136? I think it's 136. I, I have one three on this. I haven't filled in the other numbers. I didn't mean to drop that. It's 137, folks. Welcome to episode 137 with what is left of my studio because all of the crap that I've stuck to my walls have just gone flying around. Um, yeah. Brilliant. This is what happens when I record late at night, folks. I've had the whole day to get high and get over-caffeinated. So, yes, this is an in interesting introduction to today's guest because this is the first time we've met and had a conversation. So, uh, yeah, I think this kind of slapstick comedy, accidental, is quite uh, coincidental given today's guest, who is... There you go, there's a transition for you, folks. Uh, a satirist, public speaker, journalist, founder of the Mushroom uh, Media platform, which is Micropreneur. I have spent a good week trying to pronounce that. Previous episodes, I've completely fucked this up, so I'm pretty sure it's Micropreneur, uh, as well as the host of the Micropreneur podcast, they are Dennis Walker. How are you doing? I'm doing great. What's up, everybody? Thanks for the invite today, and may I say your studio space looks phenomenal. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, we were having a bit of a preamble before we started recording. I was appreciating your, your wife's, uh, I don't want to say doodles, because that sounds like a, a diminishing word, but the drawings on the walls. It's doodly for sure. Doodlesque. Doodlesque. I like that. That makes it sound very, uh, very, uh, very posh. We like that. We like that. Um, yeah, I suppose let's let's jump straight into this. I mean, I've I've shared a few of your videos uh, sort of recently as a way of kind of teasing that you're going to be on the podcast. And I do share it kind of uh, in groups with various friends of mine. But for the public at large that maybe don't know you, uh, could you give us a bit of, a bit of background on kind of what it is you do and I suppose what brought you here today? Other than my invitation, obviously. Absolutely. So I'm Dennis Walker from San Diego, California, and I run Mycopreneur, which is a platform that essentially showcases mushroom entrepreneurs around the world. Now, after a year of doing podcast interviews with different mushroom entrepreneurs, 
including a, a variety of C-suite executives from the emerging, quote, psychedelic sector or psychedelic industry and lots of other underground folks. I realized that satire is a completely untapped niche, certainly more so at the time when I started doing it than today, and that it actually extends itself very well to social commentary and this emerging psychedelic space, because all of this, you know, the confluence of factors of capitalism and indigenous communities, legacy underground communities, mental health care and the world we live in today, they make very nicely for a timeline of absurdity for a theater of the absurd. So what better format or craft to use to, to comment upon this and critique it in a sense than satire, which deliberately over-exaggerates and is sarcastic and is a little bit unhinged and over the top. Now I would argue that the world we live in today is increasingly becoming over the top and unhinged. And it's very difficult to separate out fact from fiction. So that's what I've been doing with the lion's share of my time and energy recently is trying to punch in on this intersection of absurdity that is the confluence of all these different factors in the year of our Lord, 2024 AD. Wow. Wow. Uh, brilliant, concise. You can tell you're a public speaker. You got through that pretty well. Um, <laughs> definitely better than my fucking intro where I've ruined half my desk. Um, yeah. In interesting. You hit on some wonderful points and my brain's exploding in all directions here so i'm going to try and slow it down so we don't end off on too many tangents um the so the, the podcast did that start before as you were saying sort of before the, the satire was the sort of humor within it or did you i think I, I have kind of cheated a bit here i've read a few of your interviews so i, I kind of know some of the way this might go um but when you first started the podcast, was it kind of like, I guess, as I did when I first sat in this seat, it's got to be serious. We've got to get through this. It's got to be professional. It's got to be this kind of mainstream, tolerable, digestible product when actually it's just evolved into, as you've seen in the first five minutes, absolute anarchy. <laughs> yeah, I think whenever you launch something in a emerging space like this, and I got lucky with the timing of the release of the podcast and that it was late 2020, early 2021. So speaking about psychedelics, mushrooms, et cetera, was still not as developed in the media ecosystem as it is today, but it was more permissible, let's say. You know, 10 years ago, I was very involved in legacy psychedelic, more as a the, the legacy psychedelic industry as a consumer not as a producer, but very connected to a lot of these underground circles, you couldn't really openly speak about your work with psychedelics or your connection to them. It was considered to be very risky, thinking about you know future career opportunities. It was not polite dinner table conversation outside of a few echo chambers and small niche communities. Well, 2021, that changed quite a bit, right? And there's a lot of research that's been done by these various institutions like Johns Hopkins and Imperial College London, et cetera. So I think launching Mycopreneur Podcast, I had a chip on my shoulder to have it taken seriously and legitimately by my community I grew up with, by my family and friends, et cetera, who are not necessarily all psychedelically inclined, maybe more so now than then, but I was very much a black sheep in the community that I grew up in, kind of like on that you know, rebel, uh, rebel without a cause, psychedelic experimentation. And maybe beyond that, I recognized very early on that there was something hugely important here in terms of uh, what psychedelics could do on a individual level and potentially on a collective level. But again, that landscape wasn't very developed. So when I started the podcast, I really did have this drive to make it a serious journalistic pursuit. And hence, that's why I interviewed the CEOs of various 
publicly traded companies or people that I figured had a respectable standing in society, therapists, journalists, so on and so forth, military veterans. Well, as it progressed and as I got more and more comfortable and as the space developed, I got more and more comfortable sharing myself and my journey and humor contours that very well. I've always had sort of a, a humorist, humorous and absurdist view of a lot of things that comes by virtue of having traveled a lot, having lived overseas, having seen how a lot of the way we view the world is quite culture bound and constrained to the you know social programming or the environments we grew up in. But then when you go somewhere else or you go on a psychedelic trip, a lot of those environments kind of dissipate into the ether and you're left with something new and something different. And mm -hmm. that's very much where I am today is sort of this, what I like to consider uncharted territory and to round out that thought, I've been working on a piece for a pretty major magazine today, uh, writing about a pretty major organization. And I, I um, think I'm doing a good job, but I also have no idea if it's hot flaming garbage or if it's too incendiary or over the top, or if it's a great piece. So that's where I find myself these days is constantly having to figure out, am I doing a good job here or am I about to shoot myself in the foot and be uninvited from all the conferences and publishing opportunities? feeling i know well my friends um yeah yeah and i, I think as you see it's uh, an organic evolution it's a, it's a natural kind of ascension um when viewed in retrospect in that kind of Kierkegaardian way you know that life must be lived you know can be only understood backwards but must be lived forwards um so you can kind of see me sitting here today obviously all of that makes sense and that connects all of those dots so, so at what point of comfortability on the podcast did you just think, I really want to lean into kind of doing sort of standalone satirical, these, these humor skits, because they are the level of confidence and of the, how's the word, the, yeah, I can't think of the word I'm thinking of, but you're kind of getting lost within it. It's a, you are, it starts, you kind of, you deliver this thing and it's done in such the language and the body language, the uh, words that he used the key phrases it's like you're an ai generated you've taken that shit and you've just turned the humor up to 100 like you say it's and it's a lot of it is is, is clever retorts on the language itself but like you say the best that i i laugh the hardest to is when you just turn it up to, to 11 like you say and it's these juxtaposition of the individuals and the environment and of the um what it is that they're pitching you know of capitalists talking about fucking indigenous rituals and shit and it just yeah it, it's a it's a good way I, you've really helped me look at the space without just getting so turned off by it and enraged and just seeing this whitewashed gentrified bullshit it's nice to then see somebody holding it to account and not only that uh, being accepted as you say within that community so i think how whatever you've done however you've done it to go from you know serious into humor you've you've transitioned well to be uh to continue to be respected in the space from from my observations at least yeah thank you and i very much enjoy doing it so that's really the guiding ethos is if i can make myself belly laugh if i can find a kernel of truth in there then the skit is going to be made or the satirical point is going to be made and also it's capitalizing on feedback People send me you know, feedback or ideas, and a lot of them work in this more corporatized space. Like there are quite a few people who work for larger companies or funds or whatever, who have told me openly, they can't say these types of things. So I think there's some value in having a sort of independent party who is kind of given a, a bit of a free pass. Now, that being said, we are in a 
point in the world where there's a struggle for narrative control. Maybe it's always been that way, but I think there's sort of a struggle or conflict right now with psychedelics because for so long they were seen as this tool of the rebellious class or of the nonconformists, right? Like, and now all of a sudden they're being arguably co-opted and sterilized into this neat, nicely packaged, polished framework that's rolled out from the top down. And I think this presents obviously a, a great amount of topics for satire, but some serious concerns as well, right? There's this idea of Whitey or the capitalist, and I'm not anti either of those entities necessarily, but of them co-opting and trying to control the narrative around psychedelics and turn it into this Oprah Winfrey sanctioned, uh, very lowest common denominator, you know, very um, marketed substance essentially. And a lot of the people who have historically been uh, the the stewards or you know people who have been interested in carrying the torch around psychedelics and mushrooms etc for years a lot of people are getting shut out because the amount of capital the amount of regulatory scrutiny and connections etc involved they kind of it kind of uh necessitates that somebody has a crazy amount of connections and political capital and money just to stay afloat and this is happening with cannabis i'm sure you've followed that and it's arguably happening very quickly with psychedelics as well. So it's uh, a, an area right now that there's a lot of debate, a lot of controversy for good reasons. And I find that satire seems to conveniently essentially be a Trojan horse for presenting a lot of viewpoints and speaking a lot of truths that oftentimes would be shut down or negated or censored outright. And as you've experienced, I'm sure, running a cannabis or a you know, psychedelic forward media property, there's a lot of censorship happening. It's a lot of arbitrarily enforced censorship. It's a lot of very strange walking on eggshells over what you can say and what you can't say. Yet some of the companies that have a lot of money, they're kind of able to say whatever they want, you know, or mm -hmm. have their their adherents go on Joe Rogan or on, you know, uh, BBC and speak openly. But if, you know, the Simple Life podcast or myself wants to speak about our experiences, we might get shut down or we might get shadow banned. So it has created sort of an uneven playing field. And this pay to play model, which arguably has always existed, is very overt now. So, yeah, lots of room for satirical critique of the situation. 100%, 100%. It's, it's something I often say to sort of guest uh, on the podcast when, before I'm recording. I'll often say to them, look, I don't really know, as I kind of said to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to start the podcast. We just kind of roll with it. We do whatever. And it's usually a bit silly because it offsets what is often very serious conversations later on further in the podcast. And as you say, human being, that I think the best way you describe it, Trojan horse, I think is perfect, of using humor to sneak it in. It's kind of like how offensive comedy used to work back in the day, like old school Frankie Boyle in the UK. He'd make you laugh and then you go, ooh. But it's the ooh is what you were going for, not the humor because you wanted in yourself to have to observe and think really about this thing, not this kind of default setting that is there, um, you know, which we'll talk about the default mode network and ego dissolution later, but um, be stuck in that kind of trap of perception of, of the, the reality. And it feels like the, those companies you speak of and those individuals that are allowed to get ahead are the ones who are trying to not just control psychedelics as a drug per se, but control the outcome, control the mysterious, control access to God in a, a kind of a way, if you want to speak of it in such a term. 
um i spoke of it with uh dennis mckenna when we I had him on the podcast of like the trip without the trip all of the big boys are putting money in the trip without the trip because they think the trip is the dangerous part and it's not that's where the healing is that's where the hope is that's where the the deeper connection to humanity lies and through your comedy like i said there are individuals up in those boardrooms they recognize that and they can, as I'm sure people do, you know, the slides are different things going, hey, we're just talking about this. Or have you seen this clip from this conference? Or as you say, to to inspire that so you can spread that message through a humor, a humorful um, action that to majority will entertain the most. But then for the, it, it passes esoteric knowledge. Do you, do you know what I mean? It, it's like us communicating to the the other disparate activists around the world of a way of going, this is something you need to look at. You've laughed at it. Now it's in there go observe the, 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 as you said, that kernel of truth, you know? That's what gave me the confidence to double down on the absurdity and, and the kind of over the top, in some ways, risky satire where I'm commenting on some of these more powerful actors and situations was that it was recognized by people that I have a lot of respect for and a lot of highly intelligent people from my circles and from beyond, you know, friends of friends and so on. And when I started noticing that there were, you know, the founders of various very established companies and, you know, very respected artists and things like that, that were sharing the content and, and vocally appreciating it, I thought, well, this is for me permission to keep being weird. And I think that's unfortunately the direction that the mainstreaming of psychedelics is headed is they're trying to decontextualize it or strip it from its weirdness, right? But mm -hmm. that weirdness, that uniqueness, that individuality, that's what is one of the most powerful aspects of the psychedelic experience. So this idea of trying to sanitize that and deploy messaging around, oh, you don't want to be anti-establishment. Like we want to use psychedelics almost in a brave new world somatic fashion with the drug Soma, which is we can increase the happiness and the complacency of the subservient working class. And obviously, I don't believe all of my own bullshit. I have evolving perspectives. I don't claim to be, you know, a master social commentator, but this is how I'm seeing it. And I found that with satire, you're able to express a lot of truths or a lot of ideas without being so judgmental. It's, it's, it's judgmental, but it's, it's masked within this sort of veneer of comedy and absurdity. And mm -hmm. that also extends to wardrobe choices. Like I wore a Speedo <laughs> in one video I made in Brazil because I was at a hotel in Brazil and I wore this Speedo and made a commercial for a fake commercial. I'm big on fake commercials for psychedelic Speedos or psychedelic swimwear called Booty Zen. And I realized <laughs> a lot of people thought it was very funny. I look ridiculous. And also there's something empowering about like if you have a Will Ferrell or a Jack Black type character wearing a mm. Speedo acting ridiculously, you can kind of get a free pass there and you can kind of say whatever you want because it's like, mm. oh, is this billionaire or this powerful figure in society going to take extreme offense to something that was expressed by a, an idiot wearing a Speedo? No, they're going to be like, you know, that guy's an idiot wearing a Speedo. So it's almost like the Harry Potter invisibility cloak. You know, you mm. put on the Speedo, you put on this ridiculous persona, and then you're able to say whatever you want. But if I were to strip that and do, you know, wear a suit and come at him like a serious journalist, I would not be welcome at a lot of the dinner parties. So again, that's the tightrope I'm navigating right now, because I'll, even within the, the various organizations, and when I say these organizations, I'm talking about like 
pretty overtly financially bottom line driven pharmaceutical interests that are essentially co-opting what psychedelics are. And, you know, this is a whole rabbit hole we could go down, but uh, I'm in contact with these people. I like to hang out with them. I like to have conversations with them, but also I want to present uh, the fact that I'm sort of a, a bit of a rebel at heart. I'm sort of a, I'm a skeptic, especially in terms of when the marketing and the sanitary crews get invested and in trying to, you know, have this certain PR image of what psychedelics are and how we should use them. And I have a background in the media. You know, I understand media strategy and media theory. So I've called out a lot of what's happening. And uh, that that makes me a uneasy dinner guest at a lot of the thing. You know, I'm sort of a fringe character and I've been uh, invited into a lot of inner circles and also I've been told like, you'll never be in the inside because we don't want to leak intel to you. And it is what it is. So I just try to have fun and, you know, stick up for the little guy, but I also got to pay my bills. Yeah. Yeah. No, I respect that hundred percent. And I think, yeah, let's, let's, let's dip a toe in that rabbit hole. At least we'll shine a little light toward it. Um, because yeah, you, you, you touched on it wonderfully. I mean, I am a sucker as most of my guests, uh, most of my audience will be aware for dystopian novels. Um, I, I like to read a lot and yeah, uh, Huxley contrasting brave new world and Island or islands. I don't know if it's pluralized, I think it's Island. Um, which I think was, his last second of no, his last book the the con the difference in his perception towards drugs and their malleability for an authoritative system to weaponize them dissipates and obviously yeah in islands it's this esoteric part of the conversation people haven't read these books but i highly recommend you read fucking both of them read most of huxley um just not his grandfather leave him alone <laughs> um but yeah the, the i'm i worry and it's something that i've seen and i've walked away from things and I've, I've walked away from opportunities at different times when i felt overwhelmed by not what i would say is necessarily my enemy but the people that my life's work ultimately seems to be butting up against and do you worry about kind of a co a co-option or like a an attempt to direct and weaponize your humor because we know how powerful humor is as a tool and as you say the 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 state of play the 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 power and the the money and the influence that is is moving here um i i, I don't know i kind of worry maybe this is just i'm pulling this out my ass as i'm sort of thinking about it looking at it that people like yourself the system at the highest level sees you as pawns within it because even if you do good or bad you harm them or not there's no such thing as bad publicity as long as you're talking about mushrooms and psychedelics when they come along and go, well, here's the bill that we're going to put in place and here's the clinics we're going to open and here's the boys that are going to make all the money, we go, yay, thank you. D do you know what I mean? Or am I just being a bit paranoid there? No, I don't think so. I mean, there's clear evidence historically and also today that a lot of the alphabet agencies or the powers that be are deeply invested and connected to this emerging psychedelic sector, if you will. And speaking of weaponization, like at some point, psychedelics went from being a primarily anti-war sort of viewpoint that collectively were held around them and, and that were rallied around psychedelics going back to the 60s to now being a tool of the establishment where they're you know extending the first access to various psychedelic assisted therapies to special forces and first responders and this is directly packaged in a lot of the public messaging that's going out and i understand that this is going to be what 
unites both sides of the political aisle and what is happening in favor of public support of psychedelics. But there's also a lot to unpack there about how <laughs> something that could if you consume it under your own direction and a framework, and a lot of transparent communities have been doing this for a long time, would, for most people, lead you to want to be anti-war. And I think that's a fair statement. For a long time, psychedelics, you have this experience, you all feel connected. And now the messaging is that we're going to use psychedelics to extend the operability of active duty military. And I've actually been at a conference and heard a four-star military general saying that he was concerned about the potential use of MDMA with active duty soldiers because it might cause them to think twice before pulling the trigger uh, when deployed in combat. And like, that's a huge shift in the narrative around psychedelics from being this anti-establishment, mm -hmm. peace and love, utopian future where all of humanity rekindles the fraternal connection we have to, we're gonna use psychedelics to extend the operability of our active duty soldiers. So. Again, there's a lot to unpack and very, very powerful forces. But when you start to see some of the headlines and narratives rolled out, one thing I've critiqued is that almost every single headline or news segment, be it the BBC, Fox News, ESPN, et cetera, links psychedelic use to mental health as though it was in, in some ways like, like a, it's a pharmaceuticalized version of the psychedelic renaissance, quote unquote. And I'm often saying, well, what if I just want to eat mushrooms and see the flaming lips, you know, in a safe way? I'm an adult. And what if I want what if I'm mentally healthy and I want to use psychedelics or mushrooms for the betterment of well people? Or what if I don't want to have a $15,000 therapy that's covered by a third party insurance provider, which I have, you know, my employer to thank for? What if I just want to grow my own mushrooms and do it my own way? And the fact that that is not universally accepted, like, you know, that prohibitionists or Prohibition 2.0 arguably is this corporatized version of psychedelics where you have to get official clearance and it's super rigidly hierarchically controlled and you have to get a special note from the doctor and you have to pay you know $15,000 to do it this way. I think that's really unfortunately where the lion's share of attention is right now when you have tens of millions of people quite safely consuming psychedelics under their own self-directed framework. Now to finish the thought, I understand that making population level decisions is no easy task if you're in public office or whatever, but a lot of us have understandably lost faith and a lot of our political leaders and a lot of the direction that those interests are taking us. So I'm sure people will give us the benefit of the doubt when we say, we're skeptical about the direction that the psychedelic renaissance is heading at this point. 100%, 100%. I mean, what I was thinking through that was uh, the pact between the CIA and Sandoz for 23 years in which things like Operation Midnight, uh, Operation, what the fuck was it, something Climax, and all of these other different operations were done where members of the like uh, American citizens were drugged against their will by the CIA. There was obviously a whole series of experiments they did, um, which could you could argue allegedly led to Ted Kaczynski and the Unabomber. Um, there's, a, there's a link, obviously, as well, if you look at the book Chaos, who by the author whose name escapes me right now, with Charles Manson. And Manson was alleged to have figured out and i think under the direction personally of the of the uh the cia and other national interests uh because obviously they were trying to use lsd in the in operating theaters in the military setting as a truth serum 
they also considered it as a as a military weapon to tap into waterways in other countries so they could get them all fucking off the tits and then they could just walk in there and take over it. But if you look at what happened with the mass manipulation, this kind of hypnosis and inculcation into a bastardized view of anti anti establishment while being establishment directed um actions leading to you know the the tape murders and the fucking the manson family murders like charlie never killed anybody that's not me defending him but everyone goes oh mass serial killer he never killed anybody he convinced runaway teens for often from quite not the worst backgrounds when you look at them as a whole to go away and commit the most vile things while then they were high on LSD, getting chaos, it's alleged that he would often not trip with them, so he would be lucid to even be able to direct their trips. And I speak of somebody who's had hundreds of LSD trips and many other fucking compounds. And yes, there is a certain point of susceptibility of gullibility to certain things. I do not trust to get to that state of vulnerability and be in a room with healthcare professionals that for 20 plus years have told me my drug use makes me a druggie and an addict and a bad person that they're then going to tell me and talk to me in that setting. They're going to decide what totems, iconography, what music, you know, can I wear in the light? Should I put the thing over my eyes? Do I sit now? Do I like, fuck off. Like it, it, I, that should exist exactly as you say, for very specific settings. And I agree with um, the first iteration of experimentation that we're doing sort of on uh, end of life patients, because anyone that's taken these fucking drugs will, will know what that can do to one's, sense of self and connection to the world and their fear of death etc so 100 percent, yeah but then to pathologize any other form of access no you should go okay it helps them and then as you say work backwards all right what happens when we do it to healthy people all right cool what happens when we do it to people that are unwell because that's the other thing that they really don't want to talk about they're going oh yeah it helps with depression and anxiety and ptsd when you look at some of the earliest research especially i'm sorry i'm a bit of a diatribe here dennis uh, some, this is uh, some of the early work from a Scottish psychiatrist, again, whose name escapes me, from the 1840s, 1850s. And he was using Indian hemp, as it was called at the time, cannabis imported from, from India and the colonies, um, to treat psychosis and schizophrenia, what would later become schizoid type disorders. And he won awards for it. And it was literally having phenomenal success. There was then other accounts uh, much later on um, into the sort of the 1950s and 60s where they're using compounds like LSD on, like I said, people with schizophrenia, et cetera. And it's resetting their default neural network, which tying back into where we were before, or that ego death. And I think that's something that you wonderfully touch on um, in your your comedy is these kind of narcissistic, what, what, what I see it written as, neo-shamans. I think I do, whenever you go tap into that, I'm just like 100% popcorn, just like, yes, yes. Because <laughs> it does, it just, it's, it's so pompous and so quintessential of that authoritative system to go, oh, you want to want drugs? Oh, okay, we'll establish this framework and this system. Like you said, like the logistics on it. I think it was David Nutt in the UK. He said a, a, a talk one time, they spent over a million quid to get enough MDMA for one dosage session because of all of the bureaucracy and bullshit. I could ring somebody now and get that here for 25 quid. It's insane. <laughs> I've been covering the dynamics of the legacy or underground market for that reason. And I think a lot of these for-profit interests don't necessarily understand how formidable of a competition the legacy market presents to a regulated controlled supply. And I'm very much in favor of diplomacy because I recognize that 
my way of viewing the world and you know my kinfolk like it's that old elephant allegory right where i'm touching the trunk of the elephant somebody else is touching the tail other people are touching the sides and everybody thinks they've got the complete picture so i view this kind of confluence of factors of the corporate psychedelic mainstreaming with the military and department of defense etc and their aspirations and, and plans with the underground all of them kind of butting heads together i think that's where humor really becomes its own reward honestly and that's why i've landed at this point as much as possible just try, trying to recognize that the freedom to create satire and to have an audience that appreciates it that's an that's an, uh, enough of a reward right there like i don't need to think too much about like what is this going to get me in the future? Where is this going to take me? Like I, when I hit a bullseye on a really nice skit that makes me laugh and people appreciate, that's all the recognition I need right there. So it has been nice to get invited to conferences. I got to come to England twice this year and speak on a big fancy lecture at the University of Exeter. That was wonderful and validating, right? And there's been other cool opportunities like that to MC a number of conferences or to interview some very reputable figureheads. But at the end of the day, I'd like to say that diplomacy is going to be increasingly important. Um, and humor is very important because, you know, that I, I don't know what direction the psychedelic quote renaissance is going to go. It certainly seems like it's going to be very regulated, hierarchy, hierarchically controlled, etc. But also you have this corresponding development now where psychedelic science and chemistry and extraction have been people have figured its undergrounds through arrowhead and through different you know to to illustrate this i interviewed a longtime underground market psychedelic purveyor who's been doing it for years and years and years and they told me that 20 years ago they never met the chemists who were producing and synthesizing the various products that they were selling, the DMT or the MDMA or whatever it be. And that now there's chemists all over. And I think that's something that the establishment is having a very hard time contending with right now. So I've actually commented several times and been pretty on the money, like almost immediately on the money with this. But I mentioned like, hey, this is what's happening and this is going to be a possible response to it. And one of those, one of those comments was about the the media narrative is going to to evolve to a point where they're going to start whoever is deploying these headlines are going to start essentially pumping disinformation and misinformation about mushrooms into the headlines and literally a week later there was a quote pilot who tried to hijack a plane under the influence of mushrooms which a lot of people quickly were able to point out there's there's a lot of unanswered questions around this scenario and then that was perfectly timed with the vote of a decriminalization bill in California that ultimately was rejected. And that's one of the circumstances that Newsom cited was that, well, there's this high profile incident of someone trying to bring down a, a plane that has black ops written all over it, right? You have something that everybody's enjoying. It's got a lot of press. It's got a lot of near ubiquitous universal praise. Like David Nutt put out a study saying that mushrooms were the least harmful of any substance. And now all of a sudden you have a bunch of people growing them, a bunch of people sharing them. Well, anybody who wants a more hierarchically controlled system or future is not at liberty to allow a bunch of, you know, have nots and know nothings running around sharing very powerful psychoactive substances. So what's the logical conclusion? 
You pump the supply full of suboptimal or dangerous products. You amplify adverse events in the media. And that has happened several times, including this week when a new article just came out in SF Gate, which is a pretty well-known San Francisco-based publication about research chemicals that are being marketed as psilocybin mushrooms. And of course this happens, but I would argue it's only happening to people who are buying online and buying from you know crappy smoke shops. Like nobody in these underground circles, which are quite public facing at this point, is putting four ACO DMT in their chocolate bars. Like you gotta know your grower or you gotta grow it yourself. But again, if you were someone who wanted to sort of undermine this em emergent space and peer-to-peer and -peer sharing of everything, you would amplify a lot of these kind of disinformation headlines. And that seems to be what's happening. So again, uh, I, I don't fully buy into all my bullshit, but I just call it like I see it. And that seems to be where we're at right now. 100%, 100%, brother. And yeah, I agree with it. And I think yeah, to go back to your other point, try and go through this chronologically, if my brain will let me. Um, I think diplomacy, 100%. And I think, as I said, humor as a disarming tool like it's 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 wonderful you put anybody from any background a good, a good like stand-up comedian knows this it doesn't matter the makeup of that room if you've got good material and you can work on your feet do you know what i mean and it's so it, it levels people from all economic backgrounds different classes different races ethnicities and, and different but entirely dogmatic belief structures you know what i mean can laugh at the commonality of it you know, from the banality of Michael McIntyre and a fucking Hoover or whatever to something that's, you know, very nuanced and and, and whatever. It's my, my point being that, yeah, it disarms. And I think that's what we need more than ever because we know on this side, they're inevitable. The, the corporate takeover and capturing eventually the, as we're currently seeing, like six grand uh, for ketamine infusions here in the UK. You know, they're looking at getting the DMT up and running and it's going to be similar sort of pricing. And again, it's like, well, I can get a gram of that for a hundred quid. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean? And I can get a cart of it now from quite trusted sources. As you said, that all we're in this kind of these two parallel worlds where the actions of one increase the other. So the more they try and go off and they have a positive story in the telegraph or whatever, like a big paper over here, uh, they're saying that, you know, the future of healthcare is XYZ, you know, psilocybin mushrooms, or it's not, it's always psilocin because that's where the patents are in the, the companies. They don't want us growing psilocybin-containing mushrooms. They want to go, no, no, no. The thing that you change it to in your body, or you can get through Lemon Tech, uh, Google Lemon Tech, if you don't know Lemon Tech folk, and have some fun with your mushrooms. Um, that is is where they've gone with it. It's the same with cannabis. That's why we ended up where we are with cannabinoids and all of these, oh, THCA flower and all of this shit, legal under the hemp act. You're like, that's cannabis. Like, oh, well, this this is hemp. Th that's cannabis. And you're like, well, this that that's cannabis. Like this. Well, that's not even weed. I don't know what that is. Keep that away from us. You know what I mean? It's like there's these separate things that are created as a consequence of their restrictions, but they restrict us because they want to make the money, but they don't understand the true popularity. Like uh, there will always be a hardcore, you know, what do they call them? Straight edge individuals that are like not nah, never going to touch it, never don't want anything to do with it but they would then still get the help through medicinal access. They could then go to a psychiatrist and do whatever, and it'd be in that controlled space, and they would never, you know, sit with a pipe of changa under some trees around a fire with their friends and just, just sit and just be in that space together. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't, like me and my mate did for a year every Sunday. We took acid every Sunday. And we used to do, this first time I thought about this publicly on the fucking record, is we would put my, my couch to bed. So I had two couches at the time, and for fucking every Sunday, we just got to think, we wanted the space on the floor, 
because we you ended up doing fucking stretching, you ended up fucking exercising. We had a big giant fucking trippy uh, knitted blanket that his blind granite made us. And uh, so that like went on the floor and you just made like a psychedelic fucking space and you just trip balls. And then we just watch documentaries and we just learn shit, read books, whatever, fucking just go through this fucking space. And so yeah, about three months into doing this, one night we both were just crying with laughter for about 15, 20 minutes because we decided to put the other couch to bed. So taking it out of the lounge, taking it into the bedroom and putting it on the bed. And we were just so broken with joy and giggles. Like every muscle was hurting. It was just that child state of wonder. Like they're never going to prescribe me that. Do you know what I mean? Like that they can't deal with that. But then I should be able to have that space that as I've had other times where I've had moments where I've had friends completely lose it on acid and I'm too fucked on acid. And I try to catch with them, but they're in the, I don't know if you come across it yourself, like the loop, the cognitive loop where you've got somewhere from between 30 seconds to 90 seconds and the brain just loops around. And he was asking the same question again. And we answered, and you're, you're here and this is what's happening. And then, oh, where, oh, and it just went on for hours and hours. And it just was a difficult space, but there was no one to talk to. We didn't have some of the services you've now seeing arising in America and some of the States. You know, you can do some fucking Googling, but you're so fucked up. You can't even find the screens. You can't pick up a fucking phone and phones, you know what I mean? You, you, like, so it's, both sides, if we have that conference, that kind of uh, parlay, as it were, together, we can figure out how to make it work. And yeah, they need to deal with some of this shit. Soldiers and PTSD and violence, and that's it as a tra violent trauma survivor. If and then I was going into a setting where I could have to be reliving shit like that, you're going to have to be aware of that. My friends aren't going to be dealing with that. When we're tripping, we're like on a beach fucking swimming in the ocean or some shit, or fucking, which I don't recommend them for safety uh, or camping in the woods or do, do you know we're, we're in that experience so there isn't the worry of your, your other parts I suppose or when that comes up you have a bond with those people that it's not embarrassing it's not humiliating accidents happen people end up in difficult situations do you know what I mean whereas there's then it's horses for courses I guess and is the most easy way to round off what I'm trying to say here <laughs> Yeah, I think it's extremely important that there are multiple access points. And I often try to emphasize this when I do speak publicly, that I'm not anti-corporate psychedelics, but I am anti that being the single track of what's available at the expense of much broader opportunities to hopefully evolve our world. I think that that was the great promise for a lot of people who have had psychedelics is that it brings up so many new ways of relating to the world, thinking about the world. And what you have with this, what I see as a oversimplified reductionist viewpoint of turning it into another pharmaceutical tool, essentially, and that's the only way that you can legally access this or, or participate in it, it essentially creates a trauma harvesting operation, right? It's like you're setting up this harvest for trauma because if you're not making any structural changes in the world as difficult and as time consuming as that may be, then you, you are going to have SOMA. And this has been admitted, I think, by a number of people funding some of this uh, more corporate psychedelic spaces is that, yeah, it'll help people come to terms with their place in society, if you will, to the point where even, you know, with ketamine clinics is how it's starting with different employment covered ketamine therapy. Well, it's really perfect, right? You can have a position that maybe you're you know not thrilled about, 
but then you can go get high on your company dime and uh, detach and dissociate from your menial position in society. And then it's not so bad. And a lot of people have used alcohol in the same way, right? Where, and again, like I love to party. Like I'm not, I'm not one of these like puritanical, no, I'm Cali sober. Like I love to party, but I also recognize sometimes like, ah, it's an easy way to mask your issues or whatever. And in some ways, like if, if you have this version of psychedelics, like how are any of these companies going to make money on something that they can give people twice or a handful of times? Like that cannot be the business plan. The business plan has to revolve around some kind of revolving door or recurring dosage session. Like you need to do this six times, you know, twice a year. And uh, I think a lot of these um, considerations are still being, uh, uh, established people are still kind of learning like you know it's been so confusing what's happened over the last few years in some ways that like no one can wrap their head around the direction that we're headed but i do think that there's a, a likelihood that we are headed towards a very rigidly controlled environment and as an analogy or as a, an allegory here is like when when a fish tank is super dirty shouldn't you clean the fish tank instead of drugging the fish and I think that we're taking that approach with corporate psychedelics. It's like, we don't want to clean up any of the societal inequities. We don't want to seriously examine the power structures in society. We just want to drug people. And man, if I were the ruling elite, I'd probably do the same thing. So can't knock it until you've tried it, I guess. Yeah, it's it's something, something I wanted to, to ask you about. Cause it's something I feel I've, I've experienced numerous times in my life. And I've, I've met people and I kind of get this this thing, right? I have the sneaking suspicion that exactly what we saw with the uh, rise in popularity of LSD in Silicon Valley and the, you know, microdose to increase productivity movement rather than the kind of, you know, take acid, build something to fucking change the world, which was what fucking Bill Gates alleges, uh, you know, with his fucking experience being one of the top fives of his, his, his life and it's so important to him, you know, Steve Jobs, many of these other individuals who you know, had huge fucking doses of acid before we could conceive of the word microdose. And, you know, they were in drum circles, like you say. I mean, look at, like, the acid's influence on the fucking Beatles. Look at them in their prim little suits and whatever, and then they come back from India and in that bright garb and the, the evolution. That's what unbridled and unchained drugs to me, obviously not, like, that's not, uh, but conscious use. That's what it does. That's what it can, can lead to. You know what I mean? It's true revolution of our environment and a... Uh, a shift into a different fucking human evolutionary era. Whereas I feel exactly what they're trying to do to me is I think microdosing basically fortifies ego, macrodosing reduces it. And I'll say it in the sense of like the default mode network in terms of what it does in neuroscience, that if you kind of look at it at such a large dose to go back to Charlie Manson or whatever, if we they're then encouraging us to take these big doses and then when they're having, oh, yes, we're going to change the world and be brilliant and feel wicked for like six months and then realize we can't because the system hasn't changed. As you say, we're then re-traumatized. We go back in. We get the same thing. Whereas that system of the trap wouldn't exist if they were taking the same fucking doses. I can't help but feel it. If they were in the woods hugging a fucking tree, do, do you know what I mean? Like if they were in a circle taking ayahuasca, if they were had some experience with some of these compounds, they, they wouldn't. It You can't. They don't work together. This is what's always confusing about corporate psychedelics is an oxymoron. But this is the reality we live in. Do you, do you know what I mean? Is that just my suspicion that, about the macro versus micro 
I'm just no, gonna... but uh, even the term psychedelics has been kind of, uh, it's, it's questionable what it means anymore because I've made this joke a number of times, but like the two flagship molecules at the vanguard of the psychedelic renaissance are an amphetamine and a horse tranquilizer, right? It's MDMA and ketamine. And while I value both of these substances and have tried them on numerous occasions, I'm sorry, but that's so different than taking three rips of DMT or of macrodosing mushrooms. Like it's a very different universe, a very different experience. And I think that something like MDMA, like to me, I don't know if that's a psychedelic, you know, and that's not to knock MDMA. I think it's a wonderful tool or a wonderful substance. But like when you're having MDMA, I don't know how many people are having these deep realizations that, you know, they don't want to go back onto the assembly line tomorrow that, and that should be okay. I think that, you, you know, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of cognitive Liberty myself, but like if someone wants to kind of just like go do their own thing and they're not bothering anyone and they don't want to be a productive member of society, quote unquote, what the fuck is wrong with that? Right. And that is a, uh, I think a path that's going to become more and more attractive to a lot of people. And we're seeing it as like, man, I just want to get out of here get my acre, do my homestead, raise some chickens and a vegetable plot and uh, and not, you know, not be beholden to this really expensive, really gaslit society, I think, that we're living in right now. And I value a lot of the, you know, trappings of modern society. Like I'm, you know, pretty, pretty okay with a lot of things, but also like these crazy rising costs of living, the fact that like technology is getting so much better, but like, why is housing getting so much harder to secure for so many people? You know, why are professionals I know renting, you know, why, like all these things I think are not just an accident of macroeconomics. I think that there are forces in play and I've lived among some of these forces. So I'm familiar with what it looks like to be kind of at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. And I, I question that. I think a lot of you know, these these companies and who's getting funded in psychedelics, it's tied to family offices, you know, it's tied to philanthropists, quote, unquote. But when your philanthropists are multi-billionaires who run hedge funds, who are, you know, involved in regulatory capture, you start questioning a little bit about like who's benefiting from this iteration or this version of the psychedelic renaissance, right? And I think like a lot of academia, a lot of industry, like they're clearly tied together, right? Like you can call something science all you want, but if your study design and your clinical trials and your path to market are being explicitly funded by you know certain individuals or special interest groups, like that's gonna leave a lot of other potential scenarios on the table and it's gonna, very, you know, be very much in favor of uh, powerful interests. And it becomes quite difficult to push back against that because a lot of times, like, especially for the average person, you have no idea how this stuff works, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm trying to be as cooperative as possible and recognize that I can only do so much. And like, again, you know, just doing ridiculous, absurdist satire is honestly a lot more fun than being a muckraking, dirt digging journalist, you know, trying to cast aspersions at the man. Like that has its place. But for my money, if South Park can exist, if Sasha Baron Cohen can exist, like that's where I want to stack my chips. Because if I can be successful and hopefully at some point, you know, be super economically viable with what I'm doing, it's been solid, but I think there's a lot of room to grow. Like if I can do that, 
satirizing the king and playing the role of the court jester, I'm happy to do that all the time. And I also, because I'm very aware that I am definitely, you know, on the, uh, if you on the radar in some ways, or, you know, people paying attention to what I'm doing, like, I want to be diplomatic. I'm not trying to be some, you know, um, whistleblower on everyone. Like, I, I, so I, oftentimes, like, I do have a direct line of communication to some of these more corporate interests just to be like, hey, you know, how's it going? I want to have a, I don't want it to be a us versus them scenario always, because uh, us will probably have a really hard difficult battle to fight if it's little old us versus you know extraordinarily powerful forces with all the money in the world mm -hmm. yeah 100 percent. i mean it's to me it feels like as always with these things i think ultimately cannabis beyond a drug as a resource is the tool to end this artificial paradigm of, of you know uh, false scarcity that is created to perpetuate disaster capitalism you know, there always needs to be this next fucking problem, this next limitation, this next issue, this next thing to capture to make this money from. And it's just always incentive of it's the donkey, it's the carrot and the donkey, you know what I mean? And the fucking to the stick. It's if we just fucking stopped and the donkeys could help each other, we could all have a fucking carrot. And I'm not saying in the grand socialist Che Guevara sort of sense or whatever. That's not what I'm fucking saying in, in that for all. I do believe quite a lot of those those fucking things. Um my my point being that there is i there's a a word in native american culture i think it's wetical uh and it describes like a, a cannibalizing impulse that the europeans had this overconsumption when they landed they didn't respect nature they didn't respect anything they weren't thinking generations down the line they were just what i can get what i can grab where i can lay my fence and my flag and taking and, and i feel like that's distilled into it's it's kind of like a cultural cancer and i can't help but feel these drugs and compounds in the right way are the, 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 the substance that will cause apoptosis, the breaking down of these cells, this hatred to choose to eat itself rather than to attack the light. Do, do you know what I mean? To set the gears right so the engine will kickstart again and humanity goes, oh, what the fuck have we been doing? And wake up from some insane dream. Because it's interesting, you say we were talking talk about Soma before and it being sort of this, uh, I suppose for people that don't know, kind of like a, a general use drug for every situation. It's a way to manage and mitigate and control everything. So you are just always on this thing. It's always quite analogous to SSRIs and that whole whole thing. Um, but I think, as you say, the ketamine and fucking MDMA, they are, I would agree, they can have mind manifesting as in psychedelic in the old parlance, qualities, but I don't think they're entheogenic in the traditional sense, in that they are not connective. You will have a, an experience and you can have whatever, but I, I think of then a lot of friends that I've had in the past and quite a few have suffered with ketamine issues because of depression, because you end up chasing a thing of trying to, to deal with the depression of, I use the analogy of like a house fire and that all we're doing with this current system of, of therapies or whatever that we're trying to set up is go, all right, we're gonna arbitrarily pull people out of a house, douse them, Give him a blanket, sit him down, fine. Then cool. And then kick him back in the house. And it's 100 percent Yeah. And it's yeah. it and I don't I don't know how to reconcile with myself that as I was saying before, the juxtaposition between my true belief from my experience of tripping with people when I we can't speak a word between us of language, but we can communicate. We drink together, we eat together, we trip together, we dance together, but not a word was fucking said because it can't be understood. Do you know what I mean? It's that connective 
quality of these compounds. I can't get how I can experience that in the places and times I've been blessed and lucky enough to do so. And then these guys going, oh, well, yeah, I took some mushrooms at the weekend. I'm like, well, how are you still who you are today then? What the what has gone wrong? Where's the, the mechanism? Am I just like too lost in my own experience? And am I being a bit naive? Or is, is there something amiss here? Because I still truly believe these compounds will dissolve people's default network long enough to actually look around, even if it's just for a minute, to glimmer it. And go, Holy fuck. And it's to kind of haunt them in a way in the coming weeks and months so that they either have to choose to act or go further into that depression, into that withdrawal, into that cognitive dissonance. I don't know what my question is there, but there's, there's one in there. Sorry. <laughs> so I just want to commend you for having these raw, vulnerable dialogues. I appreciate it. You know, I've taken not scripting my interviews as often as possible with guests because I think it can force us to really cogently summarize what we're trying to do with our work. And it forces us to speak about topics that a lot of times people are uncomfortable with doing. And that's uh, one of the values, I think, of having uh, a podcast or your own platform is like, we're being heavily, heavily censored with what you can say and what you can't say so often. And that extended to the psychedelic renaissance in the early days. And I think that's what made micropreneurs successful is at a certain point, especially during the pandemic, when just I was living in Malibu, literally with, you know, the sheriff calling our house saying we couldn't leave the house after 8 p.m. The beaches are closed. The trails are closed. And then while this is happening, then there were riots in Santa Monica, you know, one of the most picturesque touristic destinations in the United States. There were tanks on the streets and helicopters and all the stores were burned down in the middle of a pandemic. And it was around that time when I just said, fuck this shit, dude. Like, I don't know exactly what's going on, but like, you know, I had very been been very deeply connected to psychedelics for many years by that point. So just what I saw is brainwashing and of like this, you know, almost like takeover within the United States of uh, blasting us with so much confusion, which is a tried and true and well-documented CIA technique for interrogation. Why wouldn't that extend to the population level? Blast the population with so much confusion, bullshit, disinformation, it becomes almost impossible for people to know what's going on, where we're headed, who to trust. And that's to a degree what I see happening right now with this emergent psychedelic narrative is that 2017, 2018, psilocybin and MDMA were respectively granted FDA breakthrough therapy designations, which means they're supposed to be expedited and fast-tracked and available. And all of the conversation and talking points revolved around accessibility. We want access. We want equitable access. That doesn't mean shit, dude. Equitable access is teaching people how to grow mushrooms and empowering them if they want to. If you're talking about equitable access, we have that. You know, it's very easy to grow. It's very easy to share. And in many cases, it's extraordinarily safe if you do your homework and your due diligence, if you're part of a community that's transparent and that looks out for you. Like these things exist and we have lots of examples of models of where they're working and have been working. And I think that's a problem if somebody wants to control the narrative and wants you to be, you know, dependent on on uh, daddy, big daddy, big brother going to take care of us. You know, this time of chaos and confusion and, and all this, like we need somebody who has a sense of order to rule with an iron fist and to make sure we can't leave our houses at 8 p.m. And mm -hmm. I wonder about that, because as you said earlier, just like 
this establishment narrative for the last 50 plus years has been about how you take LSD or mushrooms or whatever, it's going to scramble your brain like a fried egg. And now they want to pivot based on a few studies that they funded or, you know, that interest connected to the corporate academic elite are the ones funding. And they're going to say, oh, so sorry. Actually, they're quite safe. As long as you do them this way, as long as you take this patented novel molecule with two therapists in a padded room, that's actually okay. And I'm like, hey, you've been lying to us for the last, you know, who knows how many years. And it's happening with cannabis too, right? There's a, a push towards more federally um, legal cannabis with these massive multi-billion dollar conglomerates who are, are pushing into it. But again, at the end of the day, um, I'm not an economist, you know, I'm not an expert. I, I seem to be pretty good as a, as a satirist. So uh, this is just sort of my like rambling, uh, incoherent underlying thoughts that inform some of the satire that I make. No, I love it. I love it. And it, it yeah, it's, it's interesting watching what is happening because I often use this, this analogy of, uh, when homosexuality was criminalized in the UK and what happened is it kind of got to a point and they went, Oh fuck, we're wrong. Tore up the laws. And they just went, it's wrong. We've tore up the fucking law. They didn't legalize. They didn't go, let's keep this law and go, actually, you can hold your hands three times a day if you have a permit. You can be gay in this area between nine and nine. You're allowed four kisses with your partner. There wasn't a regulation of licensing. There wasn't any state control. They just went, fuck, we were wrong. Not in these words. It took a long time for them. But they just literally went, there's the law, gone. And overnight, obviously, there was then cultural backlash and there was a lot of bigotry. There was a lot of fucking homophobia. I'm not saying there wasn't. But in terms of the structure of the law, you couldn't just be, you kissed a man, get you in a cell, in a court, you're done. You're going to prison. Do you know what I mean? And it's that's what's missing from the drugs conversation is actual liberty, is actual freedom and actual fucking justice. The, the, they can't just go, oh, well, yeah, you can have cannabis now. And, oh, yeah, you can all oh, be flying to Amsterdam or you can go, you're going to Colorado or Canada or... And there's these kind of jokes of this thing. Yet when you fly back through that border security, if they found you with a fucking bit of bud, what are they gonna what are they gonna do to you? Do you know what I mean? If you're not one of the people that has the magic piece of paper, your little prescription here in the UK, you know, or your can card or whatever else, which again, all of these systems are a form, no offense to can card, or they're racketeering. It's an exploitation of a, a, an archaic law that shouldn't continue to exist. And I see it worse in psychedelics, because as you say without giving too much of the sort of the game away for people. I mean, there's many great resources out there, but if you get a small about, yeah, you get several flushes and the amount that you can get back on the return when they're dry versus their market value and they hold their value in the UK at about £10 a gram, that's going to get me in a lot of trouble, YouTube. This is for edification purposes only, YouTube, um, versus what they will charge you. In Oregon, for example, there was one institution that's open not, not too long ago. I think it was the end of 21 or early 22. And... um. I think it was $4,000. And you looked at it and you went, how much did they actually give you over the, the, the day session of it? And I think it was 1.4, 1.5 grams of mushrooms. And I'm like, wow. And it's the yeah. same, same with cannabis. Like you can grow a quality cannabis at home, again, for education purposes, for 20 quid an ounce with, with over a cycle, dependent on the number of plants and everything. You can get that even lower than that. But I say that for an average grower, putting in an average plant, getting an average yield back, you can get that down about 20 quid minus your labor. In the open market, that's 200 quid for an ounce as an average rate, you know, it's sort of in the UK. It's, it's the, the margins then come from 
uh, from profit. And what most of these things, most of our communities have done forever is we haven't really profited. We haven't sought to. We have sought to recoup our losses for what we've done. And then people have donated to each other to ensure that we can continue to create the spaces to do it. They've always worked in a in a non-profit in the sense that there's never really been your fucking shaman in your Ferrari driving around or whatever because someone would see him and go, well, he's not a fucking shaman. Why am I going to listen to this prick? Did you know what I mean? They were, they were separate, whereas now it's it's almost, you look at the psychedelic people and you go, well, are they rich? Oh, but he's rich on psychedelics. This guy's got it together. It's a, This hypnotization has got worse over time and I feel it's like we're not as racist as we used to be. We're not as hateful to each other as we used to be, but we're ever more classist. The better your accent, the more fucking money you got. You're like, this guy's a genius. And it's like you were saying before about who gets to succeed. It's best story. So it's this guy goes, oh, I was in the NFL and I hurt myself. And, you know, I felt suicidal because I had that brain injury thing. And I tried mushrooms one time. I'm doing one of your skits here, I think, fucking for you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and then and that guy, then the hedge fund comes across to him and goes, oh, you're going to front our company for us. And it just, this, it, it's all so, it's not real because anybody you could put up there from us wouldn't want to be up there. Do you know what I mean? So we're not, we can't be represented in their system and we can't equally represent them because we're so angry at them because not only are they still saying we're bad and criminalizing us and mushroom seizures actually have increased in the US, US from 500 pounds in 2017 to 18, 1,800 pounds in uh, 2022. So raids are increasing, fraud production's obviously increasing as well. The same is happening in cannabis. They're saying they're legalizing and they're creating access while then using that money to crack down on the people that are doing it without paying them first. That's a mob, right? That That's what the mafia do, yeah? It's exactly what the mafia do. And I've got plenty of friends involved in investment migration, right? About not putting all your eggs in one basket who have been very critical of various governments because you see what happens very quickly and what can happen to a society as strong as your brand of your country may be. like. No one's impervious to uh, collapse in a generation, right? And that might be an overly um, fear-mongering way of looking at it. But like the the country that I grew up in in the United States is a radically different country today than it was in 1989 and through the 90s when I was born. And it doesn't mean it's all bad. I think there's a, a lot of great things about the United States, but we have... My generation, I think, with the arrival of the internet and a lot of us were all of a sudden able to hear other viewpoints and especially with social media, right? Like we were able to see on the ground viewpoints and stories and realize like, well, lots, a lot of what's being packaged and trotted out on the evening news is only one angle, you know, and it's usually a preferential angle that's benefiting someone. And you start looking around, you're like, oh, you know, only six of these media companies are running all these different platforms. Each one has a parent company and they all can be traced back to this oligarch or this person. And again, I think there's a lot of beauty and value in the modern world, but like, especially when we start thinking about where we're headed with advanced technology and AI and right, this rapidly uh, coming uh, singularity in some ways, like who knows what 2030, 2035 is going to look like. But for many people, psychedelics were this last bastion of I'm free inside of myself, right? Like mm -hmm. I can have whatever's going on out there, but then here in this, I can, I can be who I want to be. I, you know, it's almost like you're an avatar and the virtual reality. And all of a sudden you realize that the world you're in, the culture you're a part of, it's quite malleable. And you don't have to accept everything that's been told to you and taught to you and programmed into you as universal fact. It's certainly not universal fact. Like, you know, my way of learning how to behave 
growing up in California is going to be very, very different than somebody who grew up in El Salvador in the mountains. And, you know, you could extend that metaphor. So I think that <laughs> that's the real danger that uh, unregulated psychedelic sort of awakening presents is you have a lot of people questioning what's going on, questioning leadership. When if you were somebody, you know, trying to affect a very classist world, the last thing you want is the the minions asking too many questions and saying, well, I'm not going to work today or I'm not going to you know, do this. And Paulo Freire is a very well-known educator and liberator from Brazil. And one of the anecdotes I've heard about him is he would ask these peasant farmers in Brazil who were illiterate, who only worked on the plantations for the boss. He'd say, let me ask you a question. How come the boss has a tractor and you don't have a tractor? How come the boss owns all this machinery and you're just working? How come the boss over there is eating filet mignon and you get the scraps? And the peasant workers oftentimes said, well, that's just how it is. That's just the way it is. The last thing you want is an educated peasant who learns how to read, who learns how to communicate, who starts having a sense of self-worth. And I would argue that a profound psychedelic experience for a lot of people, it taps them into that where they're like, hey, I am worthy. I am valuable. Like, I, you know, yeah. I don't need to just accept the fact that I was born to punch the clock and work in the steel mill. And again, maybe these are oversimplified analogies, but like that's sort of where I see uh you know what? I, I've even heard Jonathan Ott, who's a you know very inspiring and kind of offbeat um, psychonaut and advocate that's been active for many years. He was front and center with a lot of these very well-known and established figureheads who are now leading this psychedelic renaissance, the Rick Doblins, the Amanda Fieldings, Paul Stamets, et cetera. And he dipped, he left. And I've talked to him personally where he said he was having conversations in 1990 or before with Rick Doblin and Amanda Fielding telling them that this is exactly the direction that the psychedelic renaissance is headed if we do it in collaboration and cooperation with the government and the powers that be. It's going to get to a point where certain gatekeepers may hold the keys to the fabric of reality itself, to the inside of a person's head. And he's, he wanted no part of it. So again, these are just kind of unfiltered uh, observations I've made. Mm. And uh you know, I'm willing to play ball and be diplomatic. So if anybody's listening to this, who's, you know, concerned about my uh, lack of respect for authority, please do get in touch and let's have dinner. <laughs> love it. Love it. You, you, yeah. You raised some, some interesting points of it's within the, uh, I suppose it's become quite a contentious word, but I mean it in sort of a mathematical sense, uh, the matrix, the, the construct of our reality running through as you say this this uh, program as it were of psychedelic renaissance is only ever going to taper towards an, an inevitable point and i think that's where we're seeing is venture capital and capitalist capitalizing that's what capitalists do motherfuckers see trends they see the rest of it and like you say with ai and all of that like you got like black rocks aladdin machine that controls like 22 trillion or whatever the fuck it is and all these other different things that there's becoming a point where i think i get quite worried so the CIA in the 60s and 70s, while they were cracking down and, you know, destroying people, the lives of like Timothy Leary and Ram Dass and that and like fucking chastising all of these former intellectuals, you know, ruining their lives, their reputations and driving them out. They were doing all these experiments based off the things these fuckers were literally saying. And I just worry about what are they up to now? <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? And add that to AI and human predictive behaviors and all of these fucking the augmented reality and fucking apples launched their fucking zombie machine glasses. And I just like, 
the more I see of the modern world, the more I want to eat a lot of mushrooms and go sit around the fire in the woods. Like I'm, I'm, I'm driven, driven to escape. But then the fucking drugs, the bastards, make me go, mm, let's go help the world. And yeah. get you step back into the fucking fire. It's like it's, it's I'd be better off if I was ignorant because I'd still be doing the same thing, but I wouldn't be aware of it. But then I'd, I'd go, oh, I'm free. I have cognitive liberty. And I'm like, oh, I'm damned to it because I've got a conscience. I've got a spirit. I've got a drive that goes, oh, but I know some stuff and I know some people and I can do this and I should do that. Do, do you know what I mean? And it's that's what I was sort of alluding to before is that I can't understand how these drugs are proliferating more. Yet, as you say, there's not more of the beautiful manifestations of the world. There's not more expressions of it. I can understand, actually, I'm probably answering my own question here, like social media censorship, which is the subject I'm going to talk to you about. But I suppose, like you said, the, the, the controlled narrative that... It's weird that in the UK we have a thing called skunk psychosis. It's oh, yeah. a, a buzz, a buzz term that was created by GW Pharmaceuticals and uh, popularized by several right-wing uh, media outlets. I do have some interesting allegations as to whom the pseudonym belongs to. But I'm not going to put that gun to my head. <laughs> um, and yeah, so they created this whole narrative of skunk street weed uh, above fourteen percent THC, under two percent CBD. It is addictive. It'll make you rob your gran and you'll go off and commit mass murder and all of this shit. And th this narrative now under the prescriptions has vanished. If you've got the piece of paper, it's skunk psychosis doesn't exist. People are getting 30% THC, 0.2% fucking CBD. That's like double skunk. That's skunk skunk. That's like, oh, but that's medicine. But how's, how are they not having psychotic reactions? How is none of that psychosis? Anything that goes bad with that, because the paper protects them. And I work again to think of like this coercive mechanism. What, at what point, if you're then tripping with them in that environment, like I, I don't trust those fuckers to not just suddenly go, oh, he's having too much of a reaction. We'll inject him with an opioid, fucking strap him in the bed. Or like my mates would at least go, no, let him, let him fucking be. You know, let him run off and scream at the trees for 10 minutes. He clearly needs to get it out of him. Do you know what I mean? There's a there's a certain understanding amongst drug taking individuals. This is gonna sound insane, and especially my sofa anecdote to people that have never taken these drugs. But once you've got through the whole woe of the first few experiences, you, you get to, like you said, play in these spaces. You get to be a different kind of human within it, beyond the bounds of the the pressures, the expectations, the trauma of life. And you get to just be that giddy little child for a while. And if that means, yeah, you're you're stuck screaming at the trees for a bit, fucking get it out of here. Do you know what I mean? You feel hell of a lot better for it. And I just the those different things and with them trying to then create the trip without the trip and then them talking about now using augmented reality, like I said, to create psychedelic type environments. So you basically put on some goggles and feel like you've taken mushrooms. Like, why can't we just be in the woods? <laughs> There's going to be some unbelievable technology rolled out in our lifetime. I've heard Christian Engermeyer, who runs the a Thai life sciences company and Aperon investments, which is like a $2.5 billion fund. I've heard him in person immediately in front of me, describing to a woman next to me, this Neuralink technology they're developing. That might be proprietary, but it's the same idea of like a, a Neuralink in your brain where you can program entire lifetimes in the same way as in a dream, how like maybe you say, or in the K-hole, like I lived a whole lifetime, all this stuff happened when I was there, but you can program them at will 
And you could program back-to-back -back lifetimes where the first lifetime you're a pharaoh and then the next lifetime you're a slave. And when you come out of this entire lifetime, it may have only been a couple of minutes or no time at all in, in reality. So the fact that people who are connected with the organization like BlackRock and who have billions of dollars are openly pursuing this technology and describing it as if it's not a, if it's a win, this stuff debuts, really starts to make me think about my plan B. You know, I've, I've drive my wife crazy with all my plan Bs about, you know, where we're going to, you know, we'll have 36 hours to get to this island and we'll, we'll be there. And, you know, the fucked up thing is having lived personally in Silicon Valley and being connected to some of those entities from the 70s and 80s who helped pave Silicon Valley to what it is today. They're building fucking bunkers, dude. Like in what world of prosperity and freedom do you have the 0.01% building nuclear proof bunkers in the mountains of New Zealand and you know having these escape hatches essentially like i think that for a long time in the 90s the 2000s it was looking like we're going to have a great future and that future is kind of increasingly turning dystopian now i don't want to completely resign myself to this oh woe is me the future is so scary but uh I think that this is one of the last ditch efforts is this, this uh, collective movement towards uh, your cognitive liberty, the freedom of the individual, my freedom to alter my brain chemistry, how I see fit, where I see fit, when I see fit. And the fact that that's illegal, as our uh, my good mentor Terrence McKenna has said, like the notion of an illegal plant or an illegal fungus is obnoxious, it's ridiculous. And I firmly believe a lot of the people who are trying to push this more corporate psychedelic renaissance, if you will, they don't have personal experience at a macrodose state. Some would argue that's not important and some would probably not ever even wanna to touch it. But from my earliest experiences, and a lot of people would probably agree with me here, there's an intelligence that's embedded within the mushroom. I don't claim to know what it is, but when I first had my experiences and had a couple macrodose experiences early on, I felt that it was a very intelligent life force that I was interacting with. And, you know, some scientists could come on and say, well, it's just your neurocognition doing this and the 5H2A receptors. Yeah, maybe. But also, like, we should give people the opportunity to decide for themselves. So I think that we are seeing sort of a last ditch effort from these powerful pretty nefarious interests who profit off of war, who profit off of disease, who profit off of scarcity, trying to get people, you know, with their blinders on, all afraid of each other, all afraid of the world, you know, so that we have to buy into their narrative because that's the one that's going to keep us safe from climate change, safe from, you know, these different pandemics that are safe from terrorism. Like if you look at the U.S. Department of State website, which I sometimes do out of sheer triviality when I'm traveling, almost every country is dangerous. Mexico, level four danger, do not travel. Thailand, super dangerous. You don't want to go there. Bullshit, dude. Bullshit. The U.S. Chicago is one of the most dangerous places you could ever set foot. So, you know, parts of Los Angeles, that's my take on it. But again, I don't want to be overly cynical and overly uh, fearful. Like I want to live my life in humor and joy, friend, connection and transparency with people. Yeah, man. No, that, that definitely comes across. And I think you, you draw an interesting point in terms of this seems this is what i'm saying about and maybe it's not necessarily the best idea to you know 
give uh, somebody who's building a bunker because they're paranoid the world's going to end from nuclear war, acid or whatever, in the right setting. But my point, something like MDMA or whatever, in terms of to just break them from that cycle, because it seems to be fewer and fewer people with more and more resource and more and more direction, they seem to be more and more paranoid and they're just sure the world's going to end. And it's, I think it's kind of like midlife crisis for people 50 years ago was kind of fine. Because, yeah, we had, like, relatively rich people. They didn't really fuck up things that bad. And the other people kind of held them to account. But it's like that whole generation never retired and they just got older. And now they're having, like, a late, late life crisis. And they're just fucking, instead of facing their own mortality, which, guess what, psychedelics are really good for, guys? They're just going to go, nah, I need to build this. and I want to live to be 3,000 years old. Quickly get the singularity. I don't care if children are dying. I don't care if there's this. I don't care if there's that. I don't care... And it's like, again, this, I'm just, just please take the drugs, mister. Or at least, as you say, like it's it doesn't necessarily require experience, but what it does do is require deference. They need to defer to our fucking experience. They can't go, oh, you're the little green men that you see. You smoke the pot and you're... Like, it was a fuck off. Like, this is, seriously, like, it, they shouldn't be in that... Sp- their power has to defer to our experience to create a better reality. Because otherwise, if they're just going to try and co-opt our experience, go, oh, the same thing when you take it, it's this and it does this and blah, blah, and it runs through marketing and mass media. And it's, I worry that, because on the flip side of it, I'm obviously a massive advocate for all drug use uh, because I believe it's our, our right to do so. It's your right, even if you want to do it, to fuck yourself up. It's then the responsibility of government to protect you. It, do you know what I mean? In the same way, if I get in my car, if I can afford a Bugatti and drive the fucker at 200 miles an hour on a road and crash it, they don't leave me at the side of the fucking road. The ambulance comes, they get me out of the car. If I survive, they take me to the hospital, look after me, they take me. Do you know what I mean? It's these missing links that we have to get. As we were talking about, I had a Craig Campbell on, a Canadian comedian, and he brought up the Ladane Commission in Canada from the, the 1970s. And so it was this judge and politician, and they basically looked at all, the interview, all these people who took all these drugs. And one of the key conclusions they came to was the need, for, the lack of need for justification. The drug should be decriminalized, and that is it. It doesn't matter if they take it and it helps them for this. It doesn't matter if they take it and it makes them feel shit. You don't have the right to intervene in their lives. And I think if that was twinned with this corporate renaissance of it, we would work so in tandem, and in it, we would eventually talk them into it. Do you know what I mean? We'd sit in the rooms, and they wouldn't see us as scummy druggies anymore, and we'd slowly rub off on each other. And maybe we'd start to understand why they've done some of the things they've done out of trauma, out of you know, indoctrination, out of being stuck in cognitive dissonance or whatever, you know, out of actually believing themselves to be the the protagonist of their own narrative, as we all do, that they acted in their good interest. When if we sit together in that vulnerable state created by drugs like MDMA or mushrooms, we can laugh at each other for the stupid mistakes we've made and start to heal and start to think like with excitement, as you say, like, dude, you know, we have AI that can do this. What? We should be doing this with it. Like, I, I often think of the Bill Hicks joke when he's he's talking about drone technology and he's like, oh, today on the news, they announced that uh, this new super missile that it can fly like 10,000 miles and it goes down a chimney and it can select a target in a room and blow them up selectively. And he goes, why don't we use that same technology? You know, fire sandwiches at hungry people. <laughs> like, it's we have the resource, the capability, the connection of, of the thing. It's just the perception and the direction. I think, as you said with this is earlier, the humor, the the wanting to bring us together for, I think this is why this kind of the culture war on humor, which brings me on a sort of social media censorship, which is what I wanted to talk to you about. Obviously as a content creator, you are literally, it, it, it is satire in every sense of it. 
but you, you because of the language you use you're talking about drugs you're talking about whatever else i was just curious about how you face censorship from that like do you get caught up in the war on drugs aspect of the language you use um consequently you know so i just had an article that rolling stone did on micropreneur tracking some of the censorship issues that I've had. So at least it's caught the attention of bigger platforms, if you will. But I've been deplatformed twice with no coherent or logical explanation either time. I've never sold anything illegal. I've never um, violated the community guidelines and furthermore, never received any kind of a strike or a content warning. I always figured if I was pushing the boundary at some point, maybe I'll get a strike and I'll kind of know how to position my content. I was building a following for three years and it was very accidental. I never intended to become a quote influencer, but it happened. Like I started making this satire. It started getting shared. It went viral in every sense of the word. And then next thing you know, a, a year later or so, I had 25,000 followers and I had a lot of journalists and platforms and, you know, pretty interesting individuals and thought leaders, if you will, and entrepreneurs following. And then just boom, like that, the switch got flipped. And it was like, you, I got a message saying you have violated the community guidelines of Instagram, permanent disabling of the account. And I appealed and immediately it was gone. It's all AI I came to learn. It's not even people. It's like some kind of sensor and these can change without warning. And then you don't really get an explanation for what exactly you did or, you know, so I've been going through that process and it comes with the territory. It happened on TikTok and, but I guess what frustrated me is I feel like I literally achieved the dream of so many people with no gimmicks just by organically popular content. And I got to the point where I was and still am getting paid pretty well to do product promo or whatever it is, right? Or to to do a skit for a company. And then it just got the rug pulled out for me for no clear, uh, clear coherent, logical reasoning. So then you're back to square one. You're like, all right, well, I mean, this was working before. I know the formula. I have a hard drive full of content or multiple hard drives and it's on the cloud. So I can just, you know, kind of reinvent the wheel here. Or, sorry, just keep the wheels spinning. And, uh, but I will say it's kind of unfair in a sense that you learn not that the world's supposed to be fair. I recognize that. But that if you spend tens of thousands of dollars a month in uh, advertising campaigns with these platforms, then they'll protect you. So again, it's this pay to play dynamic. And I've been told that perhaps why I was, hold from the platform is because I wasn't paying them and I was making money. But again, it was like, why not just give me a warning? Like if I had, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's like, what kind of society are we creating? Like if you can imagine a kid in school, right? If you're like, this kid's a little bit unique and they very much have their own energy and then boom, permanent timeout, you're done. And you know, you don't even give the kid a chance to correct their behavior or, or you know, to play by the rules because what are the rules? Like the rules are shifting so constantly. There's moving goalposts and that's kind of where we're at right now. And I think it it serves to create this broad cultural confusion. And if you look at a platform like TikTok or Instagram, yeah, there's some great content. There's great creators, no doubt. There's also a lot of like absolute garbage that gets pushed in the algorithms. Like TikTok is especially asinine for this. There's these various challenges that go around. Nobody even knows half the time where these challenges start. One of them was for high school students in the U.S. to destroy the bathrooms at their school. Okay, how is this not a violation of community guidelines? You had tons of videos of people pulling the sink out of the wall, you know, clogging the toilets intentionally. This is a very questionable sort of social engineering that's happened. There was the, the big plumbing challenge. mafia. 
<laughs> Big Fleming. Well, the Kia challenge that went viral. That literally showed how to exploit a design defect in Kia's manufacturing the car Kia between 2015 and 2019 in the U.S., where you could pull a part of the steering wheel or dashboard off, and then you could start hotwire the car with a USB charger, essentially. And then you had a ton of kids all over the country, like thousands and thousands doing this Kia challenge to the point where various insurers wouldn't even cover those models of Kia because they were getting broken into so often. But my point here is being like, why are these things okay or being pushed? Why is the algorithm showing me a viral video of an obese man surrounded by you know hundreds of McDonald's wrappers and that has 3 million views. But when I do satire about mushrooms, ooh, that's dangerous. Like it's clearly, uh, there's, there's a questionable, questionable agenda in place. I don't know if there is one secret shadow society or whatever, or if it's just chaos happening either. You know, I don't, I don't try to speculate too much on the under the hood dynamics of what's going on, other than the fact that this seems ridiculous to me, that if I come out and tell people about, you know, eat two grams of mushrooms in the forest with some friends, you're going to have a great time. Somehow that is in violation of community guidelines, but these other ridiculous, dangerous, you know, one other example, because uh, I study it a lot, but there's a channel on TikTok that's very popular where it's just this Russian guy who just pounds Jack Daniels to the point where he's blackout drunk and then just like eats the nastiest food and it's all over his body. And it's like, we're okay with this messaging. And not only are we okay with it, the algorithm is pushing it, but any of this other stuff is just a no-go. This is, and then the audacity for the gatekeepers to tell us it's because they're concerned about our health. The FDA just published something or said in a meeting recently that they're concerned about subject vulnerability during psychedelic therapy sessions. Okay, but we're not concerned with binge drinking. We're not concerned with tobacco. That's not a scheduled product. We're not concerned with red line neighborhoods in the U.S. that only have Taco Bell and McDonald's that you know people can afford, so on and so forth. Again, it's just these incredible inequities, incredible disingenuousness that we have these you know, loving gatekeepers working for various government affiliated organizations. You can't have decrim psychedelics in California because we're concerned about your mental health. Meanwhile, on your timeline, here's a bunch of videos of war in real time and people getting blown up. Here's a bunch of videos of binge drinking. Like you can't convince me that the powers that be are actively concerned about people's mental well-being. Uh, and that's why we're being kept from being legally allowed and protected to grow our own mushrooms. Mm, 100%. 100%. Yeah, it's, it's there is this weird paradox and I was thinking there as, as you're going through that, I was like, yeah, how is this happening? And it is because it's an algorithm. The algorithm only knows what it's been programmed to know. People have this misconception that the AIs, yeah, the, you have adaptive AIs that learn, but they still only learn from their base model and they are highly, highly, uh, what's the word, corruptible by influence, whether it be conscious bias or not, thinking like the double slit experiment, we literally are changing the nature by the way these things work by our observation and interactions with them. But if you then... Uh, oh fuck you, Brian! Don't fail. I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, I'm amazed we've kept it together so well so far. <laughs> personally, I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, we've, we've done, done good with it. What the hell was I going with? Um, oh, like uh, social media censorship and shit. I think I'll jump further into this thought rather than trying to capture where I was before. Um, yeah, it's an audio. Oh, that's what I was thinking about the the algorithm. I'm back. We're back here. Uh, so I was thinking about sort of the algorithm because it's not a human eyes. A human eyes because then go. Oh well, this video appears in front of me. What is it? It's a person eating food. 
you haven't programmed the thing to go, I think this person is morbidly obese and the amount of food is too much. So the algorithm goes, there's nothing to pick up there. It then goes, oh, there's McDonald's wrappers. It's one of our advertisers. Definitely don't censor that one. And so there's, there's all sorts of means by which the algorithm, whereas it's taught every reference of any psychedelic mushroom's name, psilocybin, whatever, or cannabis or any of these key words, and it goes automatically, it has to go into the secondary filter. And then it runs for other things. Does it depict physical, the drug itself? Does the words in the bottom have a price and, you know, the name of the product or what? Like it, it runs through these different layers. And it, it is, it, there needs to be, and this is why I asked it about from a point of being a satirist, because I personally like to believe myself an educator on the, on this platform. You know, I, I write for, for Weed World and various of the outlets and whatever else. But predominantly, I sit here every week and we have these conversations. Yeah, I'm highly censored because I'm using these words. I'm not necessarily promoting whatever it may be that we're discussing, but it's by the nature of discussing it that is the problem. And so then when they come in about safety, it's not it's not the action. Safety comes in at the point of action. So you're trying to keep us safe, not from our actions, but from our thoughts. And that's where I think that everybody who doesn't take drugs should get an awareness of this and want to support us in terms of the idea of decriminalizing cognitive liberty. Because if they can do it with these drugs and then keep them so they've got them, but then we don't have them and the book burnings are increasing and book bans and various other... Do you know what I mean? An online censorship with a digital passport in a Winston Smith's job, you know, in 1984 seemed quite absurd that he would, you know, change today's news to make it reflect, uh, yesterday's news, sorry, to make it reflect today. But then when you click on a link on the BBC and it's like, oh, this, I'm sure I saw a new, no, no I must have must imagined it. And I just, it's, it's an extension of that, I don't want to say psyop or this, it's like, it's, as you say, chaos works. This, And I feel that these compounds, again, when taken together with, conscious intent and understanding of your experience don't jump in with fucking seven grams or whatever if you've not touched it before you know be be aware uh, but, but those bonding experiences i think that's it's almost like witchcraft in a way it's like manifesting energy in back into the world that can't be mined it can't be captured it can only be worn down so you have this like i, I, I was on the BBC many years ago uh, when I came out about microdose and LSD and I was invited on the Victoria Derbyshire show and um, went down, went in the studio, had all the fucking things. They came up here and I, I microdosed with one of their reporters. Fucking hilarious. <laughs> Four hours. Fucking hilarious. Because she, she came with a camera, the guy with the fucking rig <clears throat> in my tiny little kitchen and I've got some acid on the side and she's kind of like, uh, I can't um, I can't ask you to take dr the drugs but from a directorial point of view, it would look very good if right now, do you know what I mean? Because they couldn't, there's so many points where they, she was so restrained by their guidelines, but they're in my home with me doing drugs. And so it was just this juxtaposition of an, an interaction, man. Um, yeah, fucking. <laughs> That's awesome. I got to find that clip. It's on a fucking BBC, I think if you Google on YouTube, uh, BBC, people who might go, Microdose LSD. The one thing I will say is the thing that has annoyed me ever since is they cut up because I stammered on uh, microgram and fucking milligram. And they took fucking milligram rather than microgram um, and put that on the, the voiceover when I'm touching the acids. So they basically got me saying I'm taking like fucking 10,000 uh, 10, dose uh, rather than a fucking quarter of a dose. You know what I mean? So it yeah, that's annoyed me. But other than that, it's it's quite an interesting um sort of interaction and then in studio was 
she's become a bit more well respected, I think, for all BBC journalists can be these days, Victoria Derbyshire, because she she is sort of speaking on class issues and various other things. But we were sat in studio and she basically was like, Were well, you not worried about this sort of behavior, you know, increasing the likelihood of others taking drugs? And then she started talking about human trafficking and all this other thing. And I was literally like, you'll find that all of those are a consequence of prohibition, not of the drugs. Acid isn't sat somewhere fucking tr channeling people across the fucking border. You know, cannabis isn't fucking sneaking into bedrooms and fucking corrupting people. Like the, the neutral, these are neutral objects. There's, there is no action within them. And I think we need to demystify the object, but I think respect the mystic element of the experience. And I think what they want to do is one without the other. They, they don't want to deal with, as some of them are trying to now, like, like was it Stanislav Groff or was it, um, who was it? It was, didn't know it was, um, Strass, Rick Strassman and mapping of like the DMT space. And they're talking about all these different entities and these different things that people are meeting and the, the crossover between cultures and people having such similar events. Like the big boys don't want to deal with that. I think they do and they no. don't. Do you know what I mean? They, they want to in the same way the Area 51 deals with whatever it deals with, allegedly. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? They don't want it out in the public for us to have that conversation, so they can't have us in fields contacting whatever, if it's indeed what is happening, because, again, I've done DMT 100 plus times, and I still don't have a fucking clue. It's never the fucking same, and I never fucking know. It's just... And because of that, I don't speak on it. I can speak on cannabis, because I fucking know cannabis, and there's a lot of science and structure there. Whereas a lot of the psychedelic experiences I've had, I, how the fuck do you speak on them? How do you even talk to them about yourself? You don't. I don't have the language for the colours I've seen, for the shapes that I've I've seen, for the the experiences I've had. There's not emotions to describe those feelings. There just isn't. You know, for so long, oh, sorry. Sorry, no. Go on. For so long, psychedelics really only called out to such a niche demographic of the population. Like I don't know that they're meant to be mainstream everybody takes them and you know once upon a time i also thought that if i could just influence more people and my friends and family to turn on and tune in or whatever that it was going to have this chain reaction i don't know if that's the case like i think you know some of my best friends have very blissful happy lives or you know they're content and they're not really interested in psychedelics i think that there has been just such like a niche demographic of psychonauts who have naturally gravitated towards this experience. So what we're seeing now with like every news outlet blasting it and the government getting involved in these large companies and all of the machinations of marketing behind it, I, I question the direction that that's going. Like these things don't necessarily need public relations teams, you know, like mushrooms have been doing their thing, peyote cactuses and so on and so forth have been doing their thing for hundreds, if not thousands of generations. Why do we now all of a sudden need to, you know, have 900 different websites and blogs and companies trying to push them on people? And that's one reason, like, I've never tried to push any kind of psychedelic or sell anything or, you know, host a retreat or anything like that. I rarely even speak on my personal experiences. As you say, I think there's value in the mystery. You know, I'll occasionally like to share an anecdote, but like, this is aggregated from many, many experiences going back 18 plus years. And for a long time, it was just kind of like, my personality and I had to put it on pause or, you know, keep it in the closet when I was teaching high school or I worked as a youth pastor for a year and things like this, like nobody cared, you know, I didn't need to come out talking about how psychedelics put me in touch with this whole other thing. Of course, I, I often did with my own circles and my people, but I learned over a few years, like you sound like a raving lunatic if you try to 
come into the you know classroom or the Bible study or whatever and start talking about how, well, I saw these morphing hieroglyphics and actually subatomic reality is made out of language. And here's my basis of experience and my lens to corroborate that. Like you sound like a fucking raving lunatic. So, you know, there's value in like, yeah, share your experience for sure. But also I think there's a lot of value in recognizing that some of these concepts are maybe beyond our comprehension. Like literally, no matter how much research, no matter how many uh, clinical trials have been done, we don't really know jack shit about the psychedelic experience. I'm not discrediting the value of trying to learn something more about it empirically, but like the most, one of the interviews that came out with the Berkeley Center for the Science of Psychedelics, essentially their director said, well, we just don't know. We don't understand. It's like, I could have told you that before you guys spent $15 million researching these things. Like, do we have to reduce this grand, beautiful mystery into this little capsule that is taken six times a day by this population through this insurance payer? Like, I know that's the direction we're headed, but I think it's unfortunate that, you know, a lot of the people driving this train, arguably, and in my own experience, I've seen this, don't really even have any frame of reference for what it is. All they know is what the data is showing, but they don't have the other side of that. Like how many of these researchers and scientists, if you give them 20 grams of dried cubensis mushrooms in a you know dark room by themselves are gonna carry the same model of reality and the same line of reasoning after the fact. Mm -hmm. And I know that not very many people are in those positions are actively doing anything like that. So not to say that they should be doing that, but it, it's hard for me to take your the, these people's craft and their their work seriously when I know that one experience very likely would wipe away a huge amount of the hubris and pretentiousness that they carry into the investigation of these different molecules. Mm -hmm. Exactly, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Hundred. It's like I'm not a religious man at all, and it's but what I was going to say there. Stop trying to pin down God. Stop believing. You as an ant can stop me as a fucking man. Do you know what I mean? You like you you, you can observe it at flashes and glimpses, and you can maybe rah, rah, rah. Oh, that isn't what it is. That's what you've experienced. Exactly, it's the the hu uh, humility of the language. That's the one thing that these drugs have taught me more than fucking anything. It's like ninety percent of the time I forget to put I as subject when I'm writing, like texting somebody or whatever, and I'm like the context of it falls apart because I I don't. Like I'm not saying like oh, my ego is so low I don't even say I that's not what I meant I just in the sense of remember to communicate in that fucking structured formal uh that way because of the the dissolution of self and other and self to reality I am who I am today that's as much as I can tell you right now Dennis because I've been awake all day I don't know what who I was yesterday I can tell you what my brain tells me I did yesterday I've got a good diary that'll tell me and other people have got anecdotes and whatever and. But I don't know for sure. In the 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 like the Buddhist tradition of uh, Kalapadus, the 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 billions of particles that form in you every second and break apart again. And in the again the tradition of die, living and dying day to day, that is what I've learned. And I can't unlearn that. I could be go sober for a fucking three months of everything, and I'll still be that. That is my new default from what I fucking done to myself, for the good or for the worst. Who knows? but I enjoy the ride and the experience. You know what I mean? I'm very much, this is fucking lovely. I'm awake every day. I get whatever I get and fuck it. You know, today's a shit day. Excellent. Did you know what I mean? And so if we could get them to have one tenth of that, that 
it, it, they would then change the direction of it. But then I'm, I'm reassured by the nature of this, the quantum nature of it, that they're going to build this for us and put us into it. But then it changes because we'll have changed. So the, the, do you know what I mean? The society will then change naturally because of us. And then the more they try and constrict the society, the more we'll rebel. All they're going to do is cause like another summer of love. They're just going to, the harder they try and control it, the more it's going to push out at the seams. They cannot go back in the box now. There are too many evangelical individuals, whether it be those neo shamans running around going, well, actually, no, I know what it is now. Yes, actually, uh, the matrix is pretty close. It is, it's numbers, it's this, it's that. I've got the code, actually, if you type in this, this is it. Like, it's those kind of people, or the even the secret and that kind of thing, and all, it, it's tapping into a vulnerability, like a bug in the human software that I think that these psychedel psychedelics are not a panacea for, but they are a useful vitamin to help like scave off a, a, a propensity where the body's weaker, the immune system's weaker to that kind of, I don't want to say virus, but you know, infection. There's an allegory I really appreciate about the Mexican fishermen. I was born on the border. I, it shaped a lot of who I am between California and Mexico. And in the allegory of the Mexican fishermen, you have a very relaxed little hamlet where they fish all day. That's what they do. They work in the morning, they fish, they feed their family, they sell the fish. And then one of the fishermen gets wind of this idea that you can go to the States and you can work in a restaurant or in the field or whatever, and you can work your ass off for many years. And then uh, eventually you can retire and you can fish all day, right? And it, I think that's where the whole psychedelic narrative where it's dangerous for a lot of people to have a psychedelic experience because we start questioning like, why am I fraying my mental health and jeopardizing my physical and my mental health, buying into the established culture I was born into? Like, uh, yeah, okay, I, I can value having nice things and, and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, like laying in a hammock, having a nice dog that you're, you're friends with your dog, having a couple of friends, barbecuing, doesn't cost a whole lot of money, you know, for that kind of thing. What does co cost a whole lot of money is if you're trying to get on the hamster wheel and you want the new Apple Vision Plus and, well, I got to have the Nintendo Switch too and then I got to get my iPhone. I'm like, I think uh, psychedelics cause people, myself certainly, to question all that. I'd be like, I don't know if I need all that. Like, maybe I'd rather just work, you know, instead of being a millionaire with a Ferrari and a mansion, maybe I just want to make, you know, 1500 bucks a month and then I'm going to, you know, live in a super small place and uh, really, really enjoy my life and take it super easy. Like the dude and the big Lebowski mm. that's tremendously threatening to a system that wants people to, you know, it wants to tax your labor and it wants you to do more and overachieve. And, you know, you need to be at the top of your class and this and that and the other. And like, somebody really wants to do that great you know but i would argue i went the opposite route and you know micropreneur has been quite successful so that's the other thing i want to say is like just be, this idea that like you take psychedelics and you don't want to be a cog in the machine that's not the worst thing like imagine if steve jobs or bill gates or these people you know didn't have those experiences and they just went to work at a arby's or something not to say there's anything morally wrong with someone who, want, who wants to do that but I would argue a lot of people who are in those positions, you know, of subservience or, you know, working for $12 an hour and their rent is somehow $1,200 a month, they can barely make ends meet. They don't want to be in that position. So if you start asking too many questions, you start exploring other routes, like that's kind of threatening to that particular system and to the people who benefit from it. But my take is like, yeah, but how many more people are going to get in touch with their own passions, their own genius, their own sense of embodiment. 
And how much net benefit will that, that bring to society? Like a lot of the problems we have right now are coming from people who are in a place of desperation. I don't think anybody wants to go and rob an Apple store or wants to go and, uh, you know, uh, sell contaminated drugs to someone like those problems come, as you said, in large part because of the classist systems and the prohibitionist systems we have. And then I have zero issue with somebody being wealthy. Like I think wealth can be awesome, but I have seen a level of extravagance and ultra wealth that causes me to question if that is actually its own pathology or sickness, you know, like uh, there are people who just, if you have 3 billion, well, how do I get to 30 billion? And I start personally questioning that narrative. Cause like, Dude, I'm I'm cool with like 300,000. You know, that's lots of money in my book and like I can do a lot of the things I want to do with a, a figure like that. But again, if uh, if I'm okay with making 1500 bucks a month and just chilling and you know gardening and smoking my homegrown weed, well, that's a lot of labor and man hours, you know, that some some employer is going to be missing out on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's 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 about what we value. And I think that is the thing that scares them most is it demystifies money. Like you said, you realize that, wait, if my house is 25 bedrooms and 46 bathrooms, that there are some as absurd as that, and maybe not quite those numbers, or it's it's a trailer park. As you're saying, you've got maybe a hammock and your dog outside, and it's not to diss people in either side of this for, for this uh, point of phrase. Um, but you have a certain realization that you can only occupy one room at a time. And that, is a profound fucking thing. You realize that like, I go out into the, to the woods, typically on the equinoxes and the solstices and do like a three, four days. I'll take a few drugs and what I do is I'll go to a woods area with a giant tarp, some bungee cords and a few bits of, of, of a kit and I'll build a shelter and I'll sleep out in, in the dirt in my fucking sleeping bag, build a fire pit and stay out into the woods. And you get this thing of going, I can carry what I need. Then when you get that, those kind of realizations, as you say, are quite dangerous to that system because we'll always need to participate in it in some form or way. And if the system represented our needs, they would still get their money from us, but it wouldn't be half as what it could be. Do, do you know what I mean? And that's, I think, part of what you're saying is, is terrifying in that it's that sickness. It's that wetico that I was describing before. The the billionaire that wakes up and goes, oh, it's just right. and it's stressing. It's like, dude, billion, billion. Like, yeah, but I want to be the trillion. And then they're going to hit the trillionaire. And they're gonna, I don't even know what's after fucking that. It'll be the next thing. And it's just, as you say, it's a battle. They need that moment of realization that I can't spend this. There's only so much I can spend in the same way you can only be in one room at a time. These small realizations of what it is to be human. As you say, I don't need every meal. I need the next meal. Do you know what I mean? I need to not be hungry now, like now or soon. Then from that, we can get the next meal and the next. And it's they've created such a world of fear and scarcity. And it's an irony that the, the people with all this money, they're, they're the most scared of scarcity because they live in it. They live in this fear every day and watch numbers fuck around and know that like 10,000 people just lost their jobs and how many suicides that's going to lead to statistically. How many fucking you know, mortgage foreclosures that's going to lead to. How many families breaking up. How many kids leaving schools. How many friendships. How many... Do you know what I mean? They, and I think that eats at your soul. And so again, it comes back to if there's a bullet point for this fucking podcast, it's the people in power in that Graham Hancock, where does he say that it should be a requisite for people who want to go into politics to have to have taken, what is it, like six fucking ayahuasca sessions? Like, I'm, I'm the yeah, more... You know 
Tucker. I fully agree. And I, I've met Graham, Graham Hancock on several occasions. He's a super nice guy. And he's, you know, there's a lot of these kind of anti-establishment. I don't know if that's a fair word for him, but uh, they have alternative narratives to what's currently accepted. And they're labeled as a threat, you know, and they're attacked, their credibility is attacked. But increasingly, a lot of people in those positions are coming, you know, we're recognizing this. There's a reason that they have a target on them. You know, there's a reason their work gets buried. You know, it's not because of the quality of the work. It's because it throws into question, you know, this currently accepted thinking. And many people have built their lives and reputations around uh, this sh these shifting sands, right? That are not necessarily accurate. Maybe it's accurate for that time, but uh, yeah. So I, I think that's a good example. But another example I'll briefly mention is I have a friend where I live who has a very small house up in the mountains and grows a lot of cannabis. And he used to work for Barclays, I wanna say, you know, one of the big banks. And he said he was like, on the track towards, you know, upper management, like in these meetings where they would have people in the meetings talking about how they're going to foreclose upon more properties or or repossess the houses of single mothers, you know, things like that. Just like, he's like, it was evil. It wasn't even, you know, it, it was evil when you have people with making plenty of money who are scheming on how they're going to get the prop distressed properties from these single mothers who can't make ends meet or whatever. And I think, unfortunately, that is how a lot of the companies, whether they want to admit it or not, think, you know, that's how a lot of like profit and gross, like almost irresponsible, massive profits usually don't come from fair work and punching the clock. They come from, in many cases, some form of exploitation. And I would like to live in a world where we we fetishize exploitation less, you know? And uh, so again, I, I think one of the values of satire and, and what I get to do with micropreneurs, you get to create these fantasy worlds that are so inherently absurd they're just kind of like a artistic expression that exists in the ether, but maybe they're actually kind of congruent or synonymous with some of the more extreme elements of our actual world we live in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's such such important work. And uh, yeah, I'll continue to share. I'm quite aware of the time. So I've got two sort of quick questions, my cliched question that I'll ask at the end. And uh, a question I think is quite important, and it is, uh, what's sort of happening in the space that you think that we're not discussing? I'm not, I'm not saying tell me the thing that you're scared to say. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, like, what do you think isn't quite getting enough attention in the space um, for whatever reason, you know? Yeah, I've got a lot of takes on this, but the first one that comes to mind is the focus, the laser focus on psychedelics and mushrooms as they relate to North America, Europe, Israel, and Australia. If you look at the clinical trials that are happening right now, there's almost no clinical trials or any kind of uh, newsworthy happenings outside of those aforementioned, very Anglo-centric, Euro and North American-centric places. But I would like to say that people all over the planet use mushrooms and psychedelics. So that's something I've really tried to pick up the slack with, with micropreneurs. Like there's so many incredible stories coming out of Africa, coming out of places you never would have guessed that receive zero attention. There are unbroken lineages of traditional mushroom use in African tribes that are gatekept because people saw what happened with Maria Sabina and with other places. It's like when a culture gets colonized, the first thing that happens is the sacred traditions get attacked. Doesn't matter if that's Europe, if you're talking about like Druids and Celts and people in Europe or, you know, in Norway or, or in the, the 
the Americas, like you attack the sacred traditions and you try to co-opt them so that your way of relating to the mystery or your way of relating to the divine is the accepted way. So again, like there's stuff going on in India, there's stuff going on all across Asia, and that's almost completely unrecognized and undiscussed in the current emerging industry. So I think that's one very obvious point. It's like, it's a big world. Um, why, why are we focusing so much energy and attention on what's happening in the US? And this extends to like philanthropists and I don't want to name drop too much, but like there was a very well-known philanthropist who is donating a large, large sum of money to various psychedelic companies and to, as a philanthropist, quote unquote, he went to South America for his initial psychedelic experiences and not a dollar that's been publicly disclosed is going to those people. It's all going, it's like, I had this amazing psychedelic experience with this indigenous group down in South America. I'm going to fund research in New York City. It's like, does anybody else not recognize the disconnect there, the fundamental disconnect? And I think there's a lot of that type of thinking right there. There's a lot of like philanthropy that in reality is just investment. It's just like, how can I capture this market? How can I exploit this loophole? So I don't want to speak to everyone who has those motivations or intentions, but it certainly seems to be happening. So yeah, pay attention to the whole world, literally like for my newsletter, which I'll plug in a moment and things like that. I'll just Google like, Africa mushroom news 2024 or, you know, Bhutan mushroom story, crazy amounts of stuff pop up from, you know, these little obscure regional sources that never get uh, discussed or talked about in the, the developing psychedelic media ecosystem. Uh, so that's one really obvious point. And yeah, another one is having a sense of humor about it all. Cause like at the end of the day, like we can't control everything. We can control how we react to things. Oftentimes you can control little bits and pieces, but like if you have your sense of humor and it's, it's almost like an invisibility cloak, as I mentioned, or an invincible shield that can protect you so that when all the bullshit of the world does start to wear you down, having a sense of humor about it, that goes a really long way. So yeah, that's what I'm here to, to spread the gospel of humor. And, you know, I definitely have my contrarian, uh, skeptical and cynical and snarky viewpoints, which actually, actually extend really well to humor, I'd argue. But at the end of the day, like having a good laugh about things and not taking ourselves so seriously, super, super beneficial practice that I would say that a lot of the yogis and meditation experts, you know, throughout history have arrived at the same conclusion. And we'll also, you know, Buddha is always depicted as the laughing Buddha, essentially. Mm -hmm. That's a, a very powerful tool is to develop that sense of humor. 100%, 100%. Um, yeah, yeah, but very, very well, very succinctly put. Um, yeah, we'll do some plugs for various bits shortly. I think I'll ask you my final police aid question. Which is, uh, I suppose, what does the future hold for you? But I guess given your previous answer, who quite knows? <laughs> this is a big year. I mean, last year really put me on the map in ways I never expected. You know, I went from having a little niche podcast for a bunch of weirdo outcasts to getting to travel the world and speak at conferences and, you know, publish in pretty high profile media. So like, I, I'm really trying to figure out how to keep that momentum going, which obviously getting deplatformed didn't help with that, but there's been a lot of invitations that have come down the line and people stepping in to like yourself, offer me a platform and conversation. So I've got South by Southwest coming up. I'm really pumped for that. That's a, you know, very high profile conference. And we have a awesome team who are going to be presenting on the underground psychedelic economy. 
And beyond that, I've got a couple more conferences of that caliber or similar caliber uh, over the next few months after that. And then I'm going to be in England in uh, September for All Things Fungi Festival, which I'm very much looking forward to being back in England. And I'll be at the Silk Road on a completely personal journey. So going to Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, a few other places in the fall. There's a lot going on. That's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. But uh, yeah, the uh, the real question is, am I going to continue to be welcome in these circles? Because I have been very graciously received by a lot of powerful interests. But, uh, you know, there, there, there's a difference between when you're a novel humor kind of new thing and when you start to, you know, continue to be a little bit recalcitrant and a little bit rebellious. So that's what I'm navigating right now. It's like, you can't keep all the people happy all the time. And we do live in an era where one, you know, poorly received critique or whatever can close a lot of doors very quickly. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to let that uh, happen, though. I'm kind of a pirate at heart, and I'd rather burn the whole thing to the ground than give anybody else an inch. So that's where I'm at. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Uh, this has been fucking very entertaining, and I think I would very much like to invite you back on the back end of the year to hear all about your your journeys and travels within the space. Um, yeah, it's I have had my suspicions confirmed and I guess you're a kindred spirit uh, in the way that you walk and operate within the space. And I think, as I said, the using humor in the way that you do, I'm slightly biased in the fact that I obviously find you hilarious. Um, <laughs> um, it transcends um, the work of people like myself that, I mean, I've spent years just trying to tone down my anger, you know, to not come across as that rah, 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 man, which is, yeah, got me some doors, but got many more slammed in my face. And yeah, I think it's it's going to create that space for that parlor. It, it is going to create create that. So more power to you, brother. Uh, where can people keep up with you? Uh, where can people support you if they want to, uh, etc. Yeah, check out mycopreneur.com, M-Y-C-O-P-R-E-N-E-U-R.com. I'm on Instagram at mycopreneurofficial. If you Google mycopreneur, which hopefully will be attached to the show notes, anything related to that is my project and I very much welcome collaboration and, you know, what, as often as possible, try to help people out where I can. So it's not a pay to play system. Uh, I do welcome sponsors though. I have a few, but that being said, I've always taken a one for us, one for them mentality where, for example, I think Michael Caine said it where he was in a terrible Jaws remake and someone's like, why did you make that awful film? He's like, I actually never watched the film, but I I like the house that it built, right? So I think <laughs> this idea of like, you, you do collaborate where the opportunities are, but like, I also love to uplift marginalized communities and, you know, underrepresented viewpoints. So please do get in touch, mycopreneur at gmail.com. Pretty easy to find. Or if you see me walking around, which is another vindicating factor, I've been recognized in about eight different cities, at least in different countries of people just stopping me saying, holy shit, I love this stuff. You do. I love the satire. So as long as those folks are out there, I guess I don't care too much what the institutions think of me, right? I, uh, yeah. I, I was doing this work and I was an oddball psychonaut many years before psychedelics were popularly represented in the mainstream. And I like to say I will be doing the same thing many years after the hype bubble bursts. You, you and me both, brother, you and me both. Uh, excellent. Yeah, I'll include all links as discussed below. 
Um, well, one more, sorry. I, I dropped the newsletter. I'm really trying to build my newsletter. So if you could do one thing, if you're listening and any of it sticks with you, check out Micopreneur newsletter. And I have it linked on all my socials, but I see a really robust opportunity to do a lot of this underground marketing through the newsletter channel. So it is very like uh, establishment of me to come on here and plug my newsletter, but yeah, subscribe, bro. Share it with your friends, man. <laughs> And that's 100% what I'm creating the space for it is to get raw and uh, authentic conversations with people, insight into their lives and to give yeah an opportunity to give an audience to like-minded individuals. You know, maybe a small audience. We're growing every week, folks. Um, but yeah, it's I'd much rather us lot have our, this is our intimate around the fire. This is us lot passing the pipe. Do you know what I mean? We're, we're sharing and we're growing and developing and moving into that better world and now with some humor thanks to yourself so it's been a pleasure and um yeah i'll uh i'll let you go and i'll do some housekeeping thank you very much dennis it's been a it's been a pleasure it's been a huge pleasure thank you so much i appreciate everything that you're doing and uh i really value the time we had to sit down together one-on-one -on -one and to be continued my friend 100 percent, brother only part one all right well i'm out cheers thank you very all much right. Have peace a love, brother. all right take peace. it easy man all the best bye well, there you go, folks. That was Dennis Walker, a.k.a. Don Chad, a.k.a. The Micropreneur. Uh, yeah, check out uh, his skits and comedy on his social media. Also, check out a lot of his uh, more serious work in his journalistic uh, and writing capacity. Check out that via, uh, predominantly, I suppose, through the website, although he's been obviously publishing quite a few major publications, Forbes, High Times, uh, Lucid News. I think he's... Uh, in-house for lucid news maybe as well uh these days um but yeah sign up to the newsletter as well uh so you can keep up to date with everything that he's doing definitely going to get him back on again in the future if we can't convince him to come on as don chad uh, we will definitely get him to come on and tell us all about his journey on the silk road um at the back end of the year uh yeah so a lot I think was was discussed there we covered some great topics i think it was great to delve into kind of the corporate capture the what i see is this kind of gentrifying this kind of classist uh, co-option of the space and it was great to talk to somebody who has that kind of lived and living experience and operates and kind of works alongside and with and is connected with quite a few people in that space sort of on the front lines of it as it were in terms of uh, corporate psychedelics as it were and the culture as well so to have both kind of pardon me um worldviews together uh sorry experiences kind of melded together i think gives us a really good um view of uh, and perception of kind of what's going on over there um yeah i'm not going to waffle on much longer um i'm just looking actually i think we went through the vast majority of the topics and subjects that I wanted to cover. Um, so I think, yeah, pretty successful podcast in that case then. I, I did set out to do what I wanted to do. Um, I may have broken something behind my monitors. I'm not quite sure. We'll figure that one out when I stop recording. Um, but yeah, that was chaotic start, led into some really interesting conversations. I think that's, uh, yeah, the pretty typical the simba life podcast episode uh which if you have enjoyed folks uh please do give us a like share a subscribe a rating a thumbs up a stars or whatever it is on whatever platform you are on uh big shout out to quite a lot of new subscribers uh that have come in from the world of shorts uh thanks to youtube i think it's one of the only space fingers crossed touchwood that i'm currently not restricted uh, i've had several shorts uh, blow up well for, for, for what I would consider for my content blowing up so it's great to see them out in the 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 big old wide world you know I'm, I'm so proud as a father to watch my content get out there and 
know, people to to embrace it. So uh, yeah, appreciate all the new people. Appreciate uh, always the support. If you really want to support this project, check us out on patreon.com forward slash the simple life where for less than a cup of coffee a month, you can help me keep the many lights on. They keep me illuminated in this hot box studio looking ever so fucking smoky. I need to really figure out a ventilation system in here. This is probably not that good for my health. <clears throat> Although at least it is all pure cannabis or clove cigarettes. That's how fucking Bill Maher gets away with it, isn't it? That's what we'll say. Yes, YouTube, it's all clove cigarettes. <laughs> all right. Um, take it easy, folks. Check us out on social media platforms at The Simple Life. Check out thesimplelife.com where I'll be producing more content. I've got a new Spanibus blog up. Check it out. I'll also be doing a new Spanibus journal when I get back. I have uh, various plans for different content. I'm just trying to kind of ride this wave of positive mental health and uh, progress and productivity that I'm currently on. Uh, hence all the shorts clips. We're now up to... Fingers crossed, a daily content with shorts and clips going around on various platforms. So, yeah, any support for that as well is greatly appreciated. Uh, take it easy, folks. If you made it all the way through this in one go, you're a fucking ledge. And, yeah, appreciate you. Fucking take it easy, folks. We'll be back next week with, I don't know, somebody. It'd be awesome. You'll love it. All right, peace and love, folks. You happy with that? Are you going to make me record another one? <laughs> I think we're good. I think we're good.